I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as facehuggers, xenomorphs, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. So, uh, aliens, man. (laughs) We're doing it. We're not doing abducted people. We're doing the alien franchise. Yeah, none of that kind of probing is going to be on this one. Thank God. I've seen enough of Josh trying to reenact that on the camera. <laughs> but this is uh, our season finale, I guess. Yeah. Right? Season four finale. It's supposed to be Christmas. But as you guys heard in the last one, we were dying of illness. And uh, yeah, so Christmas <laughs> came first to race the clock. Normally Christmas is the finale, but we're going to do... Episode 76, the notes are wrong because we moved shit. 76, the Alien franchise on uh, December the 26th, 2022 right now. That is today. Pre-warning, my wife has the flu and I have extra family members in the house. Luckily, the extra family members are adults and can keep an eye on my children while I try to bust this out really quick without too many interruptions, hopefully. And there's going to be background noise, so duh. <laughs> Let the next six hours commence. Oh, man. I am going to try to run through news announcements and stuff. Some of this might be a little dated because I did this thinking we were going to record it a week or two ago, but you know, here we go. Flanagan's leaving Netflix for Amazon prime. Doesn't surprise me. It's kind of a big deal. They, uh, I don't remember. I know they were trying to be controlling on midnight club and stuff like that. And something else happened. I don't remember. And he said, fuck it and left. So that means we do not get a third haunting of TV series. Yeah. Let's wait and see how it shakes out. <laughs> He's still got the, uh, <laughs> Oh, I can't think which one it is. Fall of House of Usher is still coming out on Netflix, though. Okay. But he's got plans for Prime. We'll see. James Wan and Jason Blum are talking about merging Atomic Monster and Blumhouse into one company that they both run. Yeah, I've read about that. And there's been some there's been some Blumhouse just, you know, production only, not like, you know, direct control of, but like involved with stuff that's been pretty bad. So I would much rather see Juan raise that up than uh, Blumhouse bring Juan down is, is my right. opinion. And to me, that sounds like Juan is still interested in horror. Oh, has to be. Yeah. Or he wouldn't <laughs> be wanting to do that. So there is a Scream 6 trailer out now. It's a little teaser trailer and a new poster that came out for Christmas. But yeah, it's uh, Ghostface Takes Manhattan. Oh, Lord. Um, okay, well, if we're going to go with that, I'm just going to go into a trailer that's not on the list, and that's uh, Winnie the Pooh <laughs> entered public domain, and uh, in just two months, less than two months, we we're going to get Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey, which, uh, oh, yeah. have you seen the trailer for that? Oh, yeah, that thing's been out for a while. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, so I'm I'm, I'm going to have to see it, but uh, anyways, that was a shocker to me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't learn this shit till yesterday. <laughs> I was wondering how it was being made legally. So the public domain, that makes sense. Thanks. You cleared something up that I never felt like (laughs) taking the time to Google. So (laughs) speaking of trailers, this one isn't necessarily horror, but I I feel like it's horror adjacent. Have you seen the trailer for 65? Not knowingly. So it's Adam driver. You know, that is right. I've heard the name. Oh my God. You know, (laughs) if saw him, he's a really good actor. Okay. Anyways, he, um, spaceship and it, he doesn't know if he went through dimensions or time traveled to earth but dinosaurs and he's having to fight him with like futuristic oh, weapons okay. and stuff yep 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 okay i have seen this trailer i'm actually kind of excited <laughs> mildly <laughs> <laughs> it looks fun the special effects look good and uh he usually doesn't take bad roles he can be picky <laughs> he's at that point in time in his career so okay yellow jacket season three is already greenlit season two is not even out yet so 
wow, uh, the wife will be happy to hear that because she was just the oh, other yeah. day talking about when the fuck are we going to get season two? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just saw earlier on Bloody Disgusting, I think Jason Ritter just got cast for season two. So they're not finished with season two yet. So, oh, okay. I wanted to kind of go over the Henry Cavill thing. It's not so much horror as it is nerdy, but I think it's fascinating. Um, because we've talked about him playing The Witcher, yeah. and he hasn't been real happy with The Witcher because he's a huge nerd, and he loves playing video games and miniature games and tabletop games, and the showrunners have not really wanted to follow the books or the games, and he's been fighting them for seasons, including like doing the hand gestures for the spells. He had to learn that shit from watching the video games because they didn't even want it in the show, <laughs> and they just finished shooting season three, which isn't out yet, and the showrunners apparently announced publicly that they're sick of following the source material that they hate, which I don't know why you would take the job if you hate the source material. Money. And that they're not going to follow the source material anymore, so Henry Cavill quit. That, see, that's the part I heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's going to get replaced as The Witcher by... Ian Hemsworth, which is Thor's little brother, which is, he's a fine actor. He hasn't had huge roles yet, but he's not going to be able to be Geralt. No. So Henry Cavill's like, okay, I guess I'll be Superman for a couple more movies. And then James <laughs> Gunn took over the DC cinematic universe and had yep. a meeting with them and said, he's wanting to redo all the characters and Henry Cavill's not going to be Superman anymore, <laughs> which sucks. Cause he, I don't like DC, but he is kind of the perfect Superman to me, but everybody started making jokes immediately that day he put that announcement out that he should just go ahead and make a Warhammer movie or Warhammer 40k because he loves the miniature games and those are horror adjacent and then he announced the next day that he feels like he's accomplished enough in his career that he can run an entire franchise and universe and he signed a deal to Amazon Prime and he will be starring in running and directing and all sorts of shit for a Warhammer 40k TV show on Amazon Prime well we'll see how fast that causes him to hit burnout (laughs) but uh, let's see what happens it's probably gonna be really expensive and take a while, but I just thought it was kind of neat, like how his career just kind of did all of that up and down. But that that's all I had for like horror news and horror adjacent news. Do you have anything for this exciting year? Hang on. I'm trying to remember if there's anything the wife's recently told me. No. <laughs> <laughs> we have been a little busy with the holiday that was just yesterday. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. My announcement that I wrote down is that we picked out almost every episode for next year. So uh, I, we already said it on the Christmas episode. So it's not really an announcement, but true. Horror musicals part two is still pending on the hate mail for not covering <laughs> in on the apocalypse this year. So hang on. I got to open another tab it. real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, go to Bloody Disgusting to see if they had an end of the year, like horror and review thing. They only did video games. So I was like, eh, maybe the they haven't done the movie one yet. Okay. But it did give me an idea. We could do our own. Instead of analyze somebody else's yeah. next year, because we're not ready this no, year. No, no, no. We'll be out of time. <laughs> we're not even over being sick entirely. So <laughs> Updates and corrections. I did have like a funny thought, so I didn't delete it. I don't know if I actually did the updates and corrections from the episode before the Christmas episode. So I kept the notes. If, if everybody feels like they're missing information about James Wan and... Mike Flanagan revisited. Let me know because I do have updates made. I don't recall you saying them though. Ah, no, no. News to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so old by now. Speaking of old, man, I was really sad when I published the Christmas episode yesterday because I was doing the artwork to put on the socials and I pulled up the file from last year's Christmas and that was episode 68. And this year's Christmas episode was only episode 75. <laughs> So a uh, little slow, little, little bad. Yeah. So only eight episodes this year, assuming I get this motherfucker out in five days. So wish <laughs> me luck. My update notes are kind of funny. So the top bullet point is either random gibberish or I didn't know what the fuck I was typing. So we'll skip that one. <laughs> 
I did catch myself saying stock hold syndrome and not Stockholm syndrome. So yeah, sorry. I was sick and drunk. I was going to say, I just blame the booze on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Luke reminding Garrett about all the times he bailed them out without getting caught really made me think about Ferris talking to Cameron when Cameron's having the breakdown. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, it was like a direct mirror of that, which makes sense with what he was going for, but it's funny, as many times I watched the movie, it took me listening to our episode while I edited it to figure <laughs> that out. I caught myself saying Dakri Montgomery was trying to break into the Australian market. He he was already Australian, and in the Australian film industry, he was trying to break into the American one. Most of these corrections is just me correcting me saying stuff drunk, apparently. <laughs> I, I, I chalked it up to being sick and just, I, dude, I said that there was a strange call from a house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind, I was watching A Christmas Horror Story while doing presents and stuff the other night and just laughing, like thinking of William Shatner saying stuff drunk on eggnog, and I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me every year on this podcast. <laughs> it's tradition. Yeah, yeah, this kind of bothered me. So I never saw Luke go get Garrett's glasses from outside when he was cleaning everything up, which they did too many close-ups when he was getting his ass whooped yeah. to show that his glasses fell and got stepped on, and then it never came back up in the plot, and it makes me wonder if there was supposed to be a different ending or something where he got caught, and it's because his parents found the glasses or something. I don't know. I just oh. don't know why they're back there. It seems like it's an unresolved plot point. Oh, Okay. And I thought of an interesting fact that wasn't in my notes that I meant to say. It's not so much interesting as funny, but when I got to the part about her on the stretcher flipping the bird yeah. at the end of my movie, it made me think about the director saying that like she spent a good part of the movie duct taped to the chair, and every time he'd look to her and they weren't filming, she would just flip him the bird, like, get me the fuck out of this chair, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny and worth sharing. And my final note was that I realized that the reason why Josh is so bothered by Australian doors is he realized he wouldn't be able to reach the fucking things to open them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no notes for your movie, so bravo. Uh, that's, uh, the five people who've watched it, they, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so we did something right or I did something wrong. <sighs> what do we watch? The last part of housekeeping. Um, this is going to be short, I think, because who the hell knows? It's been a while. I don't know what all I watched. I know I at least watched Smile. It was okay. All right. I'll probably never watch it again. I've started the Willow show. It's fun. I like it. Tim Burton's Wednesday was fucking hilarious. I like that a lot. <laughs> and yesterday I watched David Harbour as Santa Claus in Violent Night with my father-in-law back to back with the fat man. I love watching Santa, you know, have to fight bad guy movies. And uh, Violent Night was a little too much CGI blood, but a fun movie all around. It's funny watching David Harbour say ho, ho, ho and yell, oh, <laughs> fuck, and try to kill somebody all in the same scene in a Santa Claus suit. Honey, Santa's not real. Yes, he is. I'm talking to him. <laughs> Did you watch it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. It was a fun movie, right? It it was all right. It 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 started off like really high up and it kind of it kind of waned, but it didn't go to full-blown dog shit taco. But yeah, it was at least a fun ride. Um <laughs> dude whose code name was Krampus. I forget that yeah. actor's name, but he was in like Freddy versus Jason and like a yeah. bun bunch of shit. We talked about how why was he talking with this weird ass fucking accent, which I guess that was part of his character. I don't know, but that bothered me. <laughs> I felt like he was eating something almost every time he was talking. His mouth that, was full and he was too. chewing. Yeah, but he was still like all right, let's get you lined up. <laughs> and then, then just like <laughs> he'll talk again and be like, you over there. Like, what? <laughs> It'd be really funny to look at his IMDb or something and find out he's like Australian or something and we had no fucking clue. I don't know, man. But it was uh, it was interesting. We saw that. And if, yeah. uh, if that was it for your list, I'm going to continue to work backwards through your list. Wednesday, I had fun. 
Yeah. There's there's some stuff in there that Tim Burton or not, there's a couple of things that I'm like, no, Wednesday Adams character would not react that way or would not do this. Only a couple of times. The show kind of waned back and forth between like this is from the Adams family, this is from Wednesday, and then like steered over to I might as well turn this off and watch Sabrina instead. Like mm. the the way it kind of swung back and forth a little bit. But it was at it least It was like in, a Buffy type show to me. Yeah, yeah. It, it was at yeah. least enjoyable. I don't know how I feel about uh what is it? Catherine Zeta Jones as uh, Morticia. There were sometimes she was okay and sometimes I didn't like her. Yeah. But, but I'm not going to dwell on that. If you hadn't seen it, watch it. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah, yeah. She was used sparingly. So I think she had the look and she had the um, persona and personality. They just didn't have her do a whole lot. So I felt like she fit it. Dude, as Gomez, though, was hilarious. Oh, yeah. I'm totally down with him. I was just couldn't. I was waiting for him to say <laughs> if I'd known it was going to be this kind of party, I would have stuck my dick in the mashed potatoes. But I'm never, <laughs> never going to get that. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and Jenna Ortega, I, I thought she was great in it. Like, did you know she didn't fucking blink like in any scene? That's crazy that she did that. And like the dance scene, she made that up like on the spot the night before and shit yeah. like that. Well, and, I was watching a thing on the blinking that like it was something that happened by accident early on. And then Tim Burton's like, you're going to have to do that every scene now. <laughs> <laughs> I just, she she invented a, a version of, of Wednesday that I thought was believable. <laughs> and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some questionable CGI and stuff. But like we marathoned it and couldn't stop watching it. And we were guessing back and forth. I do kind of hate. I felt like I could figure out who the bad guy was pretty early on as a guest with no clues just because of somebody that got cast. And you're like, that person wouldn't be here unless they're. Using or something <laughs> like that. Then again, I watched. Um, oh, it was another movie I watched, not horror related, but I watched Glass Onion, Knives Out, like the new Knives Out movie. It was hey, really, really fucking good. We just watched that too. I liked it more than the first one. I thought it was really fun the whole time. But, you know, that movie has Ethan Hawke in it for about 15 seconds at the beginning. And I kept. <laughs> waiting on him to pop up as a plot point and he just never showed back up nope. so maybe somebody just knows somebody sometimes <laughs> oh lordy i've only got a couple here i'm, I'm gonna stick with the uh, not horror related clerks three was one of my oh. christmas presents that movie is everything i expected it to be unfortunately um <laughs> and, and i i mean like that's just it, it, you knew it was going to be if you followed kevin smith not just the movies. If you follow Kevin Smith and the whole thing that led to, you know, his heart attack, da, 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 da. like it, it, it's, it's, it's not a good movie, but as far as watching how everything unfolded, going all the way back to clerks and everything, like there's no other way he was going to make this movie any other way. And it takes like half of the movie before people start yeah. hitting their stride as far as actually having compelling scenes. Anyways, while we're not talking about horror I promise, I only got a couple bullet train ginger fucking loved it. I slept through half of it and still knew what was going on. So <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. It's like a Guy Ritchie movie, but it's not a Guy Ritchie movie. Okay. <laughs> That's the okay. best way for me. And it and it takes Fair. place on a bullet train where you got bad guy A through bad guy C, but then you find out that it goes all the way to Q. But then you oh, find okay. out yeah, one of those. Um, and the only other thing we watched, uh, and this is more in the holiday spirit, is uh, Christmas Bloody Christmas. The trailer made me think it was going to be like deliciously bad camp and instead it was just pretty bad okay i don't know that one either so <laughs> that's all i got i guess we're past the news and past the holiday updates and maybe we should uh dive into this monster or alien of an episode we're gonna take our asses back 
to space. Back to space. And we, we might even hit space again next season. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do want to say right here, we're only doing Alien and Aliens right now. I wanted to do the Ripley saga proper. So not necessarily every Alien movie made, but at least her four. But we just didn't have time to fit them in this year. And, and three and four aren't great, right? It just completes her story. So we'll <laughs> exactly. do those at a later time. You just get one and two today. But a little bit of background information. The movie is the baby of Dan O'Bannon, okay, who we've mentioned on this podcast before. It came from his brain. He wrote it. He went to school with John Carpenter. They were really good friends, and they made Dark Star together, which yep. is John Carpenter's first movie, first theatrical release movie. Really cheesy in theaters, something O'Bannon wasn't happy with, because it was going to be the greatest college film project ever made. <laughs> Because it was so ambitious and had so much in it, other than the alien being a beach ball and stuff like that. But John Carpenter <laughs> thought it was so big that he pushed and raised the money to have a theatrical release for it. So it went from being the best college project made in the history of time up to that point to kind of a goofy flop of a sci-fi movie in theaters. Yup. But they got their college project released, which is kind of badass, right? <laughs> and he wanted to make a more serious alien movie that didn't involve a beach ball so he wrote his masterpiece that he called star beast not a huge fan of the name but luckily <laughs> that changes later he wrote it with his friend ronald shushat and originally this was gonna be a roger corman film there's a lot of corman tentacles in the aliens <laughs> <laughs> that's who they could talk into making the movie and it would have been a lot cheesier and we wouldn't have the franchise <laughs> we have now. And I don't remember exactly what happened because I was going between a, a couple of different interviews and things like that. I will say the Beast Within documentary is phenomenal. So watch that if, if you've never seen it. But it's three hours of information. I almost feel like it was Corman who was like, this is bigger than me. I feel like that was part of it. But it ended up not being a Corman film. And it ended up going to Brandywine Pictures to get made, which was under 20th Century Fox. and. They liked the idea, and they liked how pumped O'Bannon was about it, but they didn't want to make a sci-fi movie. They're like, sci-fi movies are over and done with. We, we don't think we can do anything with this. And then Star Wars happened. <laughs> and they wanted to green light any space sci-fi movie that they had like in the books coming up. <laughs> so it basically got made because of Star Wars. What's his name? I should know this. Alan Ladd Jr., I think, was the president of 20th Century Fox back then, and he's who got Star Wars out, you know under 20th Century Fox, and, and he was instrumental in getting this made just because they wanted another Star Wars, which it, it's just different, right? Yeah. But the Brandywine producers rewrote a lot of the script, and almost all of it was thrown out because O'Bannon didn't like it, and he kept a pretty good hold on his control somehow through all this. But one thing they did create that O'Bannon did not have in his original screenplay was the character of Ash and there being a synthetic on board. <laughs> So they liked that, and they thought that was neat. There's a lot more sex stuff, I think, in it, in, in both versions of the script before the movie got made. Oh, so it was going to be a Corman film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But somewhere in there, I think it was after the Corman, after Brandywine liking it but not wanting to make it, but before the Star Wars thing happened, somewhere in there, Abandon went to go work on the huge Dune epic film that was never made. Not the Dune we know from the 80s, but the original one that everybody famous worked on and it never actually came out. And he met a set artist and designer there named H.R. Giger. And he had written or drawn an art book called the Necronomicon with all these creatures he had made in there. And O'Bannon saw one of them and he's like, that's my alien, right? And that's the famous 
Giger pictures everyone has seen as the xenomorphs and where they originated from. Yep. And Star Beast wasn't really sticking well, and they went through lots of name ideas. But somewhere in there, when they were revising the screenplay, O'Bannon realized how many times the word alien showed up in the script. And he thought that would make a much better name. And he thought it was really cool that it was both a noun and an adjective. Yeah, wordplay. <laughs> yep. But in looking for a director, they went through a lot of ideas and a lot of people, but they just didn't think any of them were right. And then they saw The Duelist, made by Ridley Scott. And I'm pretty sure that was his only film at the time. And uh, they decided to let him do it. And they only gave him a $4.2 million budget to make the movie. But Ridley Scott, for anyone who doesn't know, is a huge, huge storyboard guy. And there was a huge break in the pre-production after everything got okayed. And they had a lot of the people in line. But they weren't starting yet. And he storyboarded every fucking scene in the movie in intricate detail. And when the studio saw his storyboards, they bumped it up to almost eight and a half million dollars. Yep. They doubled his budget. Just to just let you know how impressive Ridley Scott's storyboards can be. And he said he was influenced to make this movie by Star Wars, 2001 Space Odyssey, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> he said Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre was instrumental in the horror part of this movie. Yup. I can buy it. And then, oh, there we go. In my notes, it says something, 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 Alan Ladd Jr. (laughs) Something, 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 dark side. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess somewhere in there, I uh, realized that I should probably mention that Alan Ladd Jr. got Star Wars greenlit and then came back and got this greenlit. But I said all that (laughs) off of memory and even got his name right. Look at me. I'm a Star Wars nerd. Yay. There's lots and lots of other interesting background information about this movie. Like I said, there's a three hour documentary on it, right? Plus a plethora of other documentaries and director's commentaries. And, uh, I have more stuff in here, but there's, there's so much stuff. I'll cover what I, what I think of as we go, but I could never do it all in one go. But yeah, 1979 alien. Let's go through the cast and crew here. Yay. <laughs> and you're going to hear me say a word a lot of times that I don't normally say on this podcast, and that is sir, because there are a lot of knighted people <laughs> in this movie. So Sir Ridley Scott had made The Duelist before this, but he's also famous for making Blade Runner, Legend, yeah. Gladiator, Hannibal, Prometheus, The Martian, and most recently The Last Duel with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, which I think bombed, but it I think I mentioned it on the podcast just randomly. It's been really interesting when it bombed to see Ben Affleck and and Sir Ridley Scott get pissed off in interviews because they're like streaming his killed epic films. Uh, You know, because that's what he primarily makes is three hour plus long epic dramatic movies. And people are just like, "Eh, I'm not going to theater (laughs) for that shit. (laughs) and uh i think they were they were really angry about the theater experience like i don't think they're worried about people streaming the movies but they're like people aren't going to go see epics in theaters anymore and i shot this fucking thing to be on giant imax screens (laughs) and not your fucking living room tv so ridley scott is um he's right (laughs) he's right yeah yeah. and he he never holds back i started my sentence wrong but like he's always going to tell you what he's thinking oh yeah but as i stated the film was written by dan o'bannon who wrote Dark Star, Dead and Buried, some of the segments of Heavy Metal, Return of the Living Dead, which will be covered on this podcast one day. Yeah. Life Force, which I am going to reluctantly cover on a vampire episode or alien <laughs> episode or something at some point. 
I haven't seen that movie since I was a teenager, and I mean barely a teenager, but I remember it being so fucking weird that I liked it. Another video game tie-in, but uh, for another <laughs> <know> episode. <laughs> and Total Recall, Screamers, and Bleeders. What's funny is you go to the other writer of the film, Ronald Shushet. I gotta hope it's Shushet and not shush it, but I think it's Shushet. That's how I've always heard it. But Phobia, Dead and Buried, Final Terror, King Kong Lives, Above the Law, Total Recall, Free Jack, and Bleeders. So a little bit of crossover there because they are friends. And he had more 90s action movies in that Steven Seagal slash Free Jack kind of era there. Like he did a good bit of those back okay. in the day. But these guys had some hitters in, in cult classics. As far as the cast goes, I did something different. Occasionally we mention the number of credits people have. Yeah. But somewhere in my list, I realized that some of these people had absurd amounts of credit. And I did everybody. I went back and like added Sigourney Weaver, who was on the lower end and actually kind of surprised me. But okay. Sigourney Weaver, everybody knows her, playing Ripley, 99 credits. The whole Ripley saga, obviously, is a big part of that. Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Galaxy Quest, Avatar, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. All big movies. Many, many more. Like I said, 99 in there. She was actually a Broadway actress and suggested to Ridley to play this role. And when she was cast, she actually went to the wrong location, realized <laughs> she was in the wrong fucking spot, had to race there to the actual spot. They're sitting there like, where's she at? She's so fucking late. And then she walked in they're like, that's Ripley. <laughs> like they just saw her and that's who they wanted. It was actually this close though, to being Meryl Streep. No, <laughs> nothing against her, but no, <laughs> They were going to give her the role, but her partner had died recently. And like, she took a break from acting and it was kind of sad and depressed and stuff. And Dame Helen Mirren was also almost Ripley. She probably could have done it too. And we would have had the female version of a knighted person. So that would have added <laughs> to that list. <laughs> but yeah, Sigourney Weaver, everybody knows her. Tom Skerritt is in the film as Dallas, the captain of the ship. Yep. He's been in a lot of stuff. I didn't put his number down. I feel really bad. He's the only one I didn't do lot. it. I guess when I went back. But he's been a lot of stuff, but I would say primarily to most of us, Top Gun, Poltergeist <laughs> 3, which we covered on here, yeah. MASH, which Josh and I's parents used to watch MASH all the time. I guess watch that movie. And uh, the role was straight up handed on a plate to Harrison Ford, and he turned it down. Yep. He could have done it, though, but I'm glad oh, he yeah. didn't. Like, we probably wouldn't have got Indiana Jones or something, right? Probably. All right, back to the Sir game. Sir John Hurt is Kane. So much shit. 213 credits before his passing in 2017. He was in 1984. They're Harry Potter movies. You know, he gives up the wands, man. V for Vendetta, Hellboy. He played one of the doctors in Doctor Who, the surprise one, the war doctor. Fantastic actor. Love the guy to death. Really sad when he passed. And I should say, everybody's character's name is only their last name because they purposely wrote all the characters gender neutral. Oh. But there was a couple of caveats. They never saw Ripley as a woman. But they weren't against it because they were all gender neutral. But when they got Sigourney Weaver, like, that's Ripley. And then they insisted that Kane's character be a man because of the nature of how the face huggers work. And you're basically getting raped and impregnated yep. and having a child. And they didn't want that to be a woman. And they kind of didn't want Ripley to be a woman because they didn't want to do the whole final girl trope either. So they got, you know, part of it, right? <laughs> well, if, we, if, it, if they had done the whole uh, victimization of a face hugger to a woman, it would have just been a Corman film. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> so we dodged that bullet. I say that in, in jest. I like Roger Corman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they are it, what they are. It's, it's just fun. This is this is the first time I can think of that we've come back to this in a weird way like we did with uh, Little Shop of Horrors. 
Well, that right? too. That too. Yes. But uh, going back to Wes Craven and uh, oh my god, if I'm blanking on names now. It's like these guys worked on porn first. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's pretty. Fun. Anyways, it's him and the Friday the Thirteenth guy. Right? I know. I can't get his name yeah, in yeah. my fucking head right now. It's not Minor. It's not Steve Minor, right? I think it is. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyways, anyways, that'll be in the doodly doo corrections for the season premiere of Pain. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's, let's stir it up again. Sir Ian Holm plays Ash, the synthetic. 141 credits. He died in 2020. He's in the Lord of the Ring movies and the Hobbit movies, right? Yep. That's what always jumps out to me. But I remember in From Hell and The Fifth Element and so many other things. Oh, um, always Fifth Element for me. Always Fifth Element, yeah, yeah. So great actor, and he was super creepy in this role. And honestly, I think he's the first time we ever had like a toaster I'm sorry, that's like a Battlestar Galactica reference, but like uh, like an android hidden as a human and surprise you later. I don't yeah. remember it before this. I don't. Technology didn't make it where they couldn't, you know, do things like that back in the day. So they did a lot of making the robots obviously look like robots. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sure people would say like, oh, oh there, there was this other, you know, schlocky sci-fi stuff or, or like you guys don't watch a lot of anime, do you? Uh, <laughs> type people responding right now. That reminds me of this interesting thing I was reading today. The pre-screenings for The Last of Us TV show that's coming on HBO Max is yeah. looking pretty good. And I'm excited for it. I think it's a perfect game to be adapted into live action. But there was a big article on can this, you know, stop the curse of video game adaptations. And you had all these idiots <laughs> on the comments on the website and on Reddit, like naming all these animated remakes of video games that were successful. And they're like, live action, dudes. Live action. It's a lot easier <laughs> to remake this shit. <laughs> when it's animated and get away with stuff, then live action, which is kind of funny. And then oh. the only unanimously considered good video game remake movies were Detective Pikachu and the two Sonic movies. <laughs> it's pretty funny. They're like, yeah, they're really, really good and kind of loyal to the source material in a good way. But anyways, anyways, it's already going to be nine hours. Let's not make it 12. Let's keep on with this cast. I did put the whole crew because they're the whole movie and they all have very important parts in the story for the most part. We have Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, and she's got 144 credits, but which is Eastwick, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Flight of the Navigator, The Birds. Ah. So she's got some pretty good credits there. Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, 206 credits. Pretty in Pink, Christine, he's the detective, right? Yep. Uh, Green Mile, Escape from New York, real big part, Red Dawn. He did a lot of those badass action movies and then played dads and things like Pretty in Pink, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Yafit Kodo as Parker. Not the first time he's been on here. Nope. 96 credits actually shocked me. Most of those being like cop TV crime dramas, which he was really famous for. Yep. Passed away in 2021. We covered him in Freddy's Dead, right? Yep. And he was in Live and Let Die. That's what he was famous for being a bad guy for, James Bond movie. And he was in The Running Man, which Stephen King, right? I think so. I think so. And the only other actor I'm going to name, it's their only credit, and I'm going to butcher the name, and I'm sorry, but Balaji Badio played the alien or the xenomorph. It's his only credit. He was found in a bar. He was a graphic design person by trade and career. They just saw him drinking in the bar. He was six foot ten and had really long arms and was really fucking skinny. They're like, you're going to be perfect. It was almost Peter Mayhew. Rest in peace. Who's Chewbacca? I was fixing who was this, Chewbacca. Yeah. I was about to make a Chewbacca joke, and then, <laughs> then you said that name. I'm like, wait a second. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they saw this guy, and they're like, he is shaped fucking weird. We should make an alien out of him. <laughs> 
special effects. This movie was groundbreaking on special effects. I can't list everybody. I can't list who all went on to Giant Cruise. What I am going to list is the primary original artist and the what I call Oscar crew because they all won a fucking Oscar for this movie. H.R. <laughs> Giger designed the Xenomorphs straight up. Apparently, he designed a bunch of dick aliens and everybody talks about everything's dicks and vaginas. I don't see it. If you look at it long enough, <laughs> like maybe the chest burster looks kind of like a penis. But other than that, I don't, I, well, I mean, I get it, but like people act like it's like just spot on. Apparently I would fail the inkblot test. Yeah. Yeah. This is some Sigmund Freud shit. <laughs> okay. Okay. And we had Nick Alder and I didn't put, I probably should have put who did makeup and who did mechanics and this and that, but I'm sure we can figure it out. We've mentioned a lot of these people before, but part of the Oscar crew, Nick Alder, he did legend fifth <laughs> element. Princess Bride, The Ritual, Underworld, Blade 2. He's got some bangers in there. Absolutely. Carlo Rambaldi, E.T., Never Ending Story. Silver Bullet, he's the guy that made the werewolf suit that we thought was awesome, right? Oh, damn. Dune, Conan the Barbarian, bunch of shit. <laughs> Brian Johnson, Empire Strikes Back, the same time he fucking made this movie. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Dragon Slayer, Never Ending Story. And like I said, they all got an Oscar for this movie, including Giger with Ridley Scott, because usually the director gets that Oscar too, because they tell everybody what to do. <laughs> and the score, we don't always do the score, but Jerry Goldsmith did the score, which he's famous for Poltergeist on our show, right? Like that's Yo. the main thing we covered him for, but he is a huge film composer, very famous, hard to get at times, wrote a score for this movie, and Ridley Scott did not fucking want it. <laughs> and made him do a second one, which Goldsmith thought was really derivative of his work, the way he had to do it to make Ridley Scott uh, use it. And then Ridley Scott used temp tracks along with his score in the actual movie, even then. Oh, damn. I did see interviews, you know, years, years later, where Jerry Goldsmith's like, I have no hard feelings towards Ridley Scott. He's an amazing filmmaker. I think he's even worked with him again since then, you know, years later. He was just like, he's a great director and he knows what he wants. But I got him on a second movie and he did not know how to explain and convey what he wanted for music yet to a composer. <laughs> like he knew exactly what he wanted, but he didn't know what to tell me. Boy, are we going to revisit this exact same kind of story on the second movie. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. But uh, yeah, I think I got some more little tidbits in fact before the cast and crew i did kind of overall how the franchise got started which was the first movie really but i have some things specific for this movie that i couldn't fit in necessarily with my breakdown and then we'll go through that okay yeah you guys know the drill you've been here for 76 episodes <laughs> and some half-assed bonus content attempts um anyways when trying to figure out how they're going to get the alien on the ship they were like how do we get it there i don't know what to do and then the two writers were like how about we make it fuck one of them? And then they come on the ship pregnant. <laughs> yes. So that got changed. <laughs> Technically, they do get impregnated by the alien, but um, they realized, like I said earlier, that it kind of looked like rape. So they wanted to make sure that it happened to a dude. Yep. They didn't want to hit any of those tropes. The movie is shot multiple sources, 70 to 80% handheld. Yep. Because of the look they wanted. 100% of the handheld work was done by Ridley Scott himself. Those damn hands-on directors. He was not very happy after he made this movie because this was shot in England. And when he started making American movies or movies in America, 
he found out that he's not allowed to hold the camera because <laughs> of union laws and this and that. So he prefers making movies in England so he can be hands-on and, and do shit like that. Which is interesting. I'm curious where Titanic was filmed because I always remember as a kid watching James Cameron and them doing this huge special on him making Titanic. And he did all the handheld shots, like surfing down the ship slide and holding the camera and stuff himself. And they let him use the camera. So that had to have also not been shot in America. Well, if it was shot across the pond, it was shot at Pinewood. Which is where this was shot. <laughs> he may have gotten a uh, become a member of the guild over there as a way to, to quash that. Well, that's the thing. In, in Europe, they don't have the rule where the director can't do it yeah. to so, give the cameraman work or whatever. But anyway. They got rules about fucking tea time. That has nothing to do with this. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> God, there's a, I don't think it's in my notes, but that was a big thing, too, because there's a lot of American people working with British people, and they were like, the American people were used to working this long of shifts and hours, and the British people worked much less and had scheduled tea breaks. I've got all that in the second one. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, and maybe that part of that was from the second one and not this one, but it just, I thought it was fascinating. Anyways, anyways, the director's cut has a lot of scenes in it that were formerly extras on different VHS and DVD collections, and it finally got assembled as a director's cut, which Scott did help edit all those scenes back in, and he did do the opening of that set where he introduces the film, right? Yep. But he says, to this day, the original cut of the film is the superior cut, and it's not actually a director's cut. It was a very much fan-requested thing to put all the scenes back in the movie. And they had him as the director come in and figure out how to splice them back in and labeled it as a director's cut. But that was a marketing tool. Yeah, we got that on the uh, the anthology special edition box set. That's what I've got set next to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I mentioned a couple of the cut scenes because for the most part, you could do without them. Some of them I really wish they would have kept in there. I don't know why I didn't put this in my notes, but when you actually see the alien egg cocoon thing opening and moving around before it jumps out on Kane, that was actually Ridley Scott with his hands up in there doing it. Nice. Like, he's always been a hands-on director, which I thought was cool. They use lots of animal parts for the eggs and the face huggers. Like, it's parts of a crab and, like, a lamb spleen, all sorts of random shit. They said they had awful from butcher shops, like, all over the fucking place, and it smelled like shit. <laughs> The first screening of the film had sound issues really, really bad. So, like, the first screening was an utter failure. And when they started scouting other places to screen the movie before it came out, they made sure the sound worked because it was so important for the movie. And they would see people getting up and running, and they're like, oh, my God, they hate the movie. But it was the people were going to the back because they were so scared they wanted to watch it standing near an exit door and not sitting <laughs> in the chair. And then you also had the people that had to get up to fucking vomit everywhere. Yeah, And people were puking so much from watching the movie that there was actually a Texas theater that cut the chest rip scene entirely out of the movie because they were sick of cleaning vomit up. Damn. And that was the scene that did it. So they just cut it out of the fucking movie. <laughs> the space jockey, which is the most expensive part of making this movie and barely shown in this movie and has <laughs> spawned the prequel verse, was set up outside of, I think, the Chinese theater. Okay, But it was set up outside of a major theater as a display thing, and it was torched by religious groups because they believed it was the devil and destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a likely story. <laughs> and they would not let O'Bannon on set to watch the dailies, which he was pissed about because this was his baby. This is like the most hands-on I've ever seen a screenplay writer be on a movie. And I, I could have gone an hour just on shit that he did. Uh, trying to help with this movie made and being on set, which is now contractually obligated for the screenwriter to be on set. But that's like yeah. a new thing that happened in the past year or two. He just was going to get his shit done, but they wouldn't let him watch the, the dailies. And I don't know if it was really Scott that wouldn't let him watch it or 
the producers or what, but he got around it by making friends with the projectionist that would play it in the little theater and he would stand up in the booth next to the projectionist and watch out the window. <laughs> so he wasn't present for the dailies, but he got to watch the dailies. I thought that was kind of awesome. And speaking of the producers, they put so much money into this movie that all of the producers, I think there's like eight guys in suits, were up Ridley Scott's ass. There's nine of them. I have it on my notes. Nine <laughs> of them. He had to deal with them with the first couple of weeks in the 14-week shooting schedule. Jesus Christ. Just right up his ass, and they realized he knew what he was doing. All right, guys, this is going to be oddly cut in there, but since my wife does have the flu and just needed me and called a couple times and I didn't see it, I'm going to take my phone off of silence. So I uh, <laughs> apologize for any dings or rings that come in, but it is mandatory to get this episode out and take care of the family today. So You mean it won't be the Imperial March? No, it's the Imperial March if she calls straight up. She's not a fan. <laughs> She's not a fan of it at all. But uh, probably probably texting. She tried that first. and Yeah. Anyways, I think I got through all my behind the scenes, and I was ready to break out the log line, which is a new thing that we've been doing recently, but I like it. But I have the log line, the producer line, and the poster line for this film because they're all great. Okay. <laughs> don't worry, Josh. You don't have to go all in like this. But log line the crew of a commercial spacecraft encounter a deadly life form after investigating an unknown transmission. Okay. That's pretty good for a log line. <laughs> the producer's line, which is what in the back end, producers trying to like get this movie made and stuff they use to describe to people to put the money up and stuff. <laughs> Jaws in space. It'll make money. <laughs> Jaws in space. That's great. I like it. And then what most people think of and would assume is the log line is actually the poster line that was made up by, oh, I should have wrote her name down. Um, I don't remember her position, but she was, she might have just been a marketing person, but I feel like she did something else. But in space, no one can hear you scream. That's the best out of all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll grab that for later. Funny fact about the posters. This isn't in the notes, but most of the original posters of the movie, the alien egg was not the cocoon and was actually a normal white chicken egg that you would get at a grocery store. <laughs> Delicious, not terrifying. You know what? That's the time I'm going to bring this up. I don't know if you've ever noticed in our kitchen. One, there's the there's the the words that the wife had me put up that everybody's noticed that says many have eaten here, few have died. But uh, right, right. There's these 50s and 60s adverts uh, around that side of the kitchen, too, where there's one that's like a vampire lady and it says, drink, you should drink this much blood every day. And on the other yeah. side from the banner, there is a, a Whalen Corp uh, advertisement that says start every day with an egg. And it's the, the 50s nuclear <laughs> family sitting around the table with the eggs and face huggers jumping out on the kids faces. <laughs> Send me a, a good pick later, and I'm going to put it on the Instagram because I've been to your house a hundred thousand times, and I don't think I've caught that one. But you have so much stuff; it's hard to catch everything. <laughs> and I want to see it and share it with the listeners. <laughs> I think most people see it and they're like, "Oh, it's some more their Halloween stuff," and nobody ever actually takes the time to see what they are. <laughs> I was laughing because I was going through our podcast drive and cleaning it up a bit, and I saw the little dancing video. I don't know; it's from one of the celebration download things when we were actually clever enough to do those stuff but anyways you're <laughs> dancing doing your little josh shimmy with a face hugger hanging behind you in the corner it's, it's kind of yeah, awesome yeah, it's yeah. nice touch let's hug some faces jesse we open up with a pan through space showing us the opening credits as the title card slowly forms because they made a font for the movie and it's coming in as lines like it's binary and slowly building it i think yep. it's pretty cool we can see a ship that we will soon know as the nostromo drifting through space we get a what I call nowadays a James Wan tour through the ship, right? <laughs> As the camera goes through its corridors room by room until we land on the room with the sleep pods as our crew is awakening from their 
hibernation they get put in as they travel. Okay. Stasis. Stasis. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> and I'm the sci-fi nerd, I thought. Um, interesting fact, this ship is one continuous set. Oh, nice. Just like how the Firefly was built for Firefly and Serenity, or maybe at least just Serenity, but wasn't done very commonly back then. It's still not done commonly now, but you could walk through the ship room by room. Obviously, the floors weren't stacked. You would go down a fake ladder and then go to a yeah. different room, but still. Nice. We go from them groggily waking up from hibernation to seeing the family dynamic of the crew at the dinner table, and they're all just sitting around bullshitting and joking with each other. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else gets more than us. Our Captain Dallas is hailed to the special communications room by the ship's AI mainframe known as M-U-T-H-U-R 6000, or simply Mother. We find out that the ship prematurely woke up from their stasis <laughs> and that mother is actually what pilots the ship while they're in hibernation and woke them up because there's something going on, right? Like a transmission SOS or whatever. Some shit has happened. Shit has happened. Yes. While Dallas is talking to the machine, the crew quickly realizes that they're not in the right solar system to wake up in. <laughs> and we find out that they're on a cargo towing vehicle and they're basically space truckers. Yeah. Like, normally when you say cargo ship, talking about sci-fi and these types of movies and video games and stuff, you would expect there to be cargo on the ship. And the reason why you don't see that here is they basically pull barges, like you see the trash barges go down the river and stuff. Yeah. Wait, why's it got to be trash? Uh, oh, the first kind of barge I pictured. <laughs> You're talking about the barges we see where we live regularly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we live off the Mississippi River, so. Yeah. A lot of trash. Not far from it. You see a lot of trash barges. <laughs> Anyways, fucking space truckers. But we can see that Brett and Parker are the ship's mechanics, engineers, whatever you call them, and they like to bicker a lot. And Dallas comes in to let the crew know that they are obviously not home yet and that they are awakened by the ship due to a nearby SOS transmission. Parker reminds them that they are a commercial cargo company and not a rescue military ship. And then Ash, the science officer, has to remind them that there's a clause in their contract where they forfeit all shares, which they were really worried about their shares and bonus shares earlier, if they ignore a distress call ever. Yup. This is part of the way they explain them not having weapons aboard the ship, as that they're truckers. You would think that they have some kind of weapons in case, I would assume they're space pirates. <laughs> like people hijack trucks now why wouldn't they hijack them in space especially if you have people hibernating and shit right or in stasis but that's half of it i'll explain the other half later because weapons do get brought up slightly well take us into the next thing that event horizon pulled directly from this movie <laughs> <laughs> we then see the nostromo launching the small shuttle that is attached to the ship and it goes planet side onto lv426 to check out the sos and correct me if i'm wrong is it a planet or a moon I wrote planet, but I feel like it's a moon. I'm trying to remember because it gets referenced a whole lot in the second one. If we don't figure it out when we get to Josh's movie, I'll put it in the notes. Sometimes I think things are moons erroneously because of indoor and Star Wars. <laughs> I know my brain's fucking broke. Okay. But the shuttle can't handle the dust and the debris as they're entering the atmosphere from this nasty ass. I'm feeling like a moon right now, but whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> and the circuits start to blow. Which Brett and Parker end up saying will take 17 hours roughly to fix. Like it's so damaged because it wasn't meant to handle that much debris in the engines and stuff. <laughs> and we can see that 
Brett and Parker are not a fan of Ripley when she offers to come help them repair the ship faster. What the hell is she coming down here for? You better stay the fuck out of the way. I'd like to see what she's going to do when she got there. And I kind of went through that quickly, but yeah, they were asleep. They got a distress call. They tried to land. It looked like they were about to crash. They landed. The mechanics who wanted a bonus are pissed that they have to fix this broke-ass ship now, okay? In a situation they don't want to be in. They have Ash go through the atmospheric and geological data since he is the ship science officer, and he says they should be able to make it in their spacesuits, and they need to go check out the distress call because it's going off every 12 seconds. Kane volunteers to go planet side, which seems like a shock to no one. They're all like, yeah, of course Kane's going to fucking volunteer to go. <laughs> and Lambert's sent to go with them, and I'm assuming the captain always goes because they're not a military vessel or whatever because... He acts like they're the two ordered to go, but Dallas goes as well. Yeah. And he seems like a by-the-book kind of guy for the most part. Ash is monitoring everything from the cockpit, and we see him do this weird get psyched up kind of thing where he just starts running and jogging in place and punching. (laughs) And then he looks normal again, which is odd to say the least and i assumed it was supposed to be like a weird android thing after seeing the movie and ridley scott actually said that or was it obannon one of them said that they were thinking that robots joints would get stiffened up and that sometimes they would have to do like this routine oh okay i thought it was just because you know those first models were a little buggy and we find that out later <laughs> god damn they're buggy a little rapey too <laughs> I broke out the R word two episodes in a row. What the fuck? We need to start picking better movies. No, this movie's great. I'm lying. But you know what I mean. Anyways, we cut to Ripley going off on Brett and Parker and giving them orders on repairing the ship. And they continue to give her hell about their shares. And she lets them know that they're guaranteed by law to get a share. So they need to stop bitching and whining about these bonuses because they're getting it anyways. And Parker was fucking with her the whole time while he's talking about <laughs> bonus and the shares. And he keeps blasting air out of the pipes and the tubes. And she's having to yell over them. And she's giving like this, like, fuck you smile the whole time they're talking. And she leaves the bridge after having enough of their shit. It's great, though, because as soon as she walks off, they make it stop doing it out of the pipes. And Brett and Parker start laughing. They're great. Like, everybody feels fun. like a crew. Yeah. Yeah. On the bridge, we can see that she's now the officer in command, which, I mean, she was acting in charge. But we know for fact now she's the officer in command while Dallas off the ship, and she wants to parse the data that Ash was going through. He's not very forthcoming with a lot of his scientific shit. Find out why later. Swamp gas, Venus. <laughs> that is still one of the best explanations for fucking anything in the history of film, and I love it. <laughs> we will cover them dumbass fucking movies one day. <laughs> Back on LV-426, we can see Dallas and crew approach a large, derelict ship. Ash seems to have a smirk on his face as he's monitoring them. And if you watch, he's got a lot of this weird shit going on. Like, he knows what's what's up. And if you've seen this movie, you know he knows what's up. But I just want to point it out as it happens. <laughs> Once they enter the ship, we can see weird shit on the tunnel walls that is obviously some H.R. Giger shit. And commonly referred to as the vaginal canal, apparently. <laughs> And they eventually come into a large open room with the space jockey, as he's known, mounted onto a cannon. And they can see that he's been dead for a long time, is now fossilized, has shit growing, like merging him into the chair. He's been there so long and something obviously burst out of his chest. Yep. One thing I want to say about the scene, I don't remember what the spacesuits were made out of, but it was fucking crazy. And there's a lot that went on here because, like I said, this is the most expensive shot in the movie 
the producers were pissed. They came on set. They saw the jockey. They're like, it's on the screen for like eight seconds. And they're like, this explains everything. This is our Cecil B. DeMille shot. Like, this is the <laughs> holy shit, this movie costs money to make. We have to put it in there just for that, right? <laughs> the suits trapped heat in to the point that the actors couldn't breathe. They were having to get oxygen from nurses to film the scenes. <laughs> they were dropping out and passing out. And to make the room in the space jockey look bigger, Ridley Scott put two of his kids and another kid in smaller spacesuits and had them act out most of the scene in the far shots. That's his move. And I, the kids passed out, or at least one of them did. Damn. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's another thing you can get away with in Europe. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy what they did for that one short scene. Almost killed the actors and stuff. But they got the shot. But they got the fucking <laughs> shot. It's a great shot. Set up prequel series. Anyways, we cut to Ripley as she wants to go assist him, but Ash talks her out of it. Meanwhile, they lower Kane into the belly of the ship that has the weird xenomorph Geiger shit growing on it. Like, it looks a lot like his artwork from the Necronomicon. He comments on how hot it is down there and... He might be talking about his fucking spacesuit for all I know, <laughs> but he found a large group of eggs covered in mist and the mist and eggs react when he touches them, right? Like the mist is a signal in itself. I don't know if that's ever addressed in the franchise, but they do make a deal of that. And there's like a weird sound going on and the sounds affected when he touches it and all sorts of shit. Do you know the whole thing about the laser light that they used in the mist? Yes, it's coming up. Okay, okay. My bad, my bad. Continue, <laughs> continue, sir. <laughs> but basically, as he touches the mist, he gets dizzy, and it fucks up his electronic system when he touches it, blah, blah, blah. And what Josh is referring to, and I don't remember where it's at in my notes, but <laughs> The Who was working on, I think, their live show on one of the stages at Pinewood there, and they had these new laser lights that they were using for the show. Ridley Scott saw them. He wanted them. They borrowed the Who's lights. So when you saw the mist and the weird lights going through it, it's it's from the Who. I don't think it was a video, though. I think it was actually like for their live show. Yeah, and it was it was like yeah. the one of the first laser light rigs like ever used in anything in that capacity. Yeah. And that's just really cool that it happened in two places basically at the same time. And you wouldn't be shocked nowadays to find out that Ridley Scott is making a movie in a studio next to something else being made, and he wants to borrow some top-of-the-line <laughs> random shit they have and hand it. It's really interesting that they let Ridley Scott have it at this point in time in his career. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but he could say it was a 20th Century Fox production, right? Yeah. Brought to you by the same producer that discovered Star Wars, right? Right? <laughs> Write that shit out. They'll, they'll lend you anything. Anyways, pretty cool little factoid there. But, like I said, Kane's fucking with the mist. It's fucking with his electronics. He's getting a little dizzy from it. But there's nobody there to hold up the bad idea sign. Right? <laughs> Since there's nobody there to hold up the bad idea sign, Kane decides it'd be a good idea to go fuck with the eggs. And, of course, one starts to hatch. And if you pay attention, the water is dripping up the egg, not down the egg as it hatches. Ridley Scott thought it would be unnerving and fucked up if he shot it that way. So they, I think they flipped the camera upside down. Either the egg's hanging from the ceiling or they flip the camera upside down, but I think they flip the camera upside down, which the egg would also be upside down. Either way. Yes. <laughs> yes. The shit, the it shit's works. hanging upside down. And so you can get a real cheap, ver a cheap way to shoot what you're about to go into. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, Kane fucks with the egg some more until it opens up and he decides it's a good idea to look into the fucking thing. <laughs> and a face hugger jumps out and latches onto his helmet, which when I hadn't seen this movie in a while, I'm like, how does it get on his fucking face? It was really funny as many times as I've seen it. Like I still blank out on shit sometimes. <laughs> 
But we cut to the cockpit as Ripley is startled and awakened because she's like taking a nap in there by Dallas on the comms. And Dallas and Lambert have dragged Kane to the hatch with the facehugger now on his face. It ate through the glass on the helmet somehow, almost like it had acid or something. <laughs> but you can see that Ash has positioned himself at the hatch controls to let them in. Ripley wants to know what the fuck's going on with Kane, and Dallas explains that something attached itself to him. And Ripley says, due to quarantine protocol, she can't let them on the fucking ship. And Dallas keeps ordering her, letting her know that he's the fucking captain, and to let him in. And Lambert starts going off on her and cussing her out. And while they're going back and forth, Ash says, fuck it, and lets him in anyways. I wonder why. What a dick. I think it made it into the director's cut, but every time Lambert went to slap Ripley, when they were filming the scene. Sigourney Weaver would like flinch or duck or move. And I think that's what made it into the theatrical cut. Like not a good fake hit. Oh. But in the director's cut, <laughs> and what happened behind the scenes is she kept flinching and Ridley Scott basically told Lambert that, or Veronica, that she was going to have to fucking slap the shit out of her. And there's a full contact, full slap on Sigourney Weaver in that movie. Damn. Yeah. There's a lot of weird shit he did, and it's probably in my notes somewhere, but, like, he had the dude that played the alien eat somewhere differently. He didn't want them to know him. That's probably, I mean, that happens a lot nowadays, but that's yeah. probably the origin of that. He wanted Yafit Koto and Sigourney Weaver to not get along, so he had Yafit Koto be a dick to her offset. Stuff like that. Okay. Which is funny, because by the end of the movie, they're having to be, like, the team that binds, <laughs> you know, the tie that binds, but... Anyways, we cut to the infirmary where Dallas and Ash are taking a look at Kane while the rest of the crew watches from like outside through like the hallway and the observation window. Yeah. And they saw what is left of the helmet off of Kane and get a good look at the facehugger, like the full body now. And you can tell the tail's wrapped around his throat, right? Dallas tells Ash to try and get it off of him. And he tries to pry one of the arms or fingers or whatever the fuck Ash calls it off of his head with a... I mean, it's the same thing I pick hot dogs off the grill with, but you know, <laughs> um, as he pulls on the digits or whatever, the, the tail, we'll call it tightens around his throat and starts to choke Kane. Right. Yep. They realize that if they keep trying to get this thing off, it's just going to kill Kane. And Ash wants to scan him to see the inside of the alien and Kane's body. And Parker wants to know why the fuck they don't just freeze him, take him back home to the experts while he's frozen. <laughs> Seems like a good idea to me, right? <laughs> Science officer's not down with it. Once again, I wonder why. Oh, Honestly, I'm making jokes like it's really ham-fisted with Ash. I was young when I saw this, but I've talked to people that were older when they saw it. Nobody had a fucking clue about Ash when they saw this movie. Oh, no. Not until, not until shit gets discovered with Mother <laughs> did I realize it. And, and even then, I'm not talking about, like, how could you figure out he was an android, but just the fact that he was dirty. Like, yeah. you don't know that shit until you start seeing top secret orders, He's right? A Microsoft backdoor. <laughs> <laughs> it's Siri. It's not Microsoft. <laughs> we got to go with the Genesis, all right? It all came from that goddamn garage. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the Elon Musk joke that I cut from the Christmas episodes, so I wouldn't get sued. I'll keep the Siri joke. But anyways, on the scan, they can see that there's a tube going from the alien into Kane's throat, which Josh, what's your word? Proboscis. It's a real word. Yeah, yeah. Proboscis or proboscis or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> which he, he taught me during the fly or something. Yes. Anyways, it's something like that going down his throat and Ash thinks that it's feeding oxygen to Kane and keeping him alive. 
Dallas wants it to come off anyways. Ash tells him not to be too hasty and gives him a load of shit on why he may or may not should do it. Dallas orders it. He reminds him he's the science officer. Dallas reminds him he's the captain. And Ash is like, I can only do it if you take responsibility because I'm the medical professional. And, and Dallas is like, I take full fucking responsibility to cut the shit off of him. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a cool back and forth between the two. Yeah. A lot of seasoned actors before their prime in here. It's great to see it. Ash tries to saw a finger off of the alien or arm or whatever the fuck. And when he does, it squirts out the blood, luckily far away from Kane's head, off to the side. <laughs> and it hits the floor, and we can see that its blood is acid, and it starts to eat immediately through the floor. And Dallas yells that it's going to eat through the goddamn hole. And they start following it deck by deck as it starts eating through the floor and dropping. And it finally stops. I don't know how close they are to, you know, breaching the hole here, but it does stop at some point. And Parker says that that's one hell of a defense mechanism. And how the fuck are they going to kill it? <laughs> Earlier, I said they were space truckers, and that's why they didn't have a whole lot of weapons. They do have very few weapons they can't use. This was the other way they, they explained it, because they were actually working on the movie, and they realized there was a plot hole in their screenplay. They're like, why don't they just fucking blast the alien away? Yeah. And then I don't I don't know which of the two of them came up with the genius idea, but somebody's like, let's make it have acid for blood. They can't shoot it because it'll rupture the hole. <laughs> Fucking ingenious, but was not thought out until they hit a plot hole. Oh, okay. Time goes by, and we can see that Parker and Brett continue to work on the ship so that they can get the fuck out of there. They did say it would take at least 17 hours, so I guess we could say it's a day, right? Kane is still in a coma. Ash is watching the monitor like it's the fucking Super Bowl. <laughs> And a keen eye will notice that while he's looking at it, there's an embryo inside Kane's chest on the scan. Ah. It's not pointed out. You have to pay attention. And Ripley comes to Ash to check on Kane, and he turns the monitor off really fast. <laughs> Ash lets her know that not much has changed with Kane, but he has some more information on the face hugger. He doesn't call it a face hugger, but that's what they're called now, and it's going to be a face hugger for the rest of this episode. <laughs> He says that it can shed its shells and alter its body to exist in different environmental situations. Well, it's an interesting combination of elements, making him a tough little son of a bitch. So that's how I can go from, like, the space atmosphere onto their ship and stuff and not be affected in any way. Like a parasite. <laughs> nice screech and weasel reference. I appreciate it. You're welcome. But anyways, Ash will not let Ripley look at shit, and she reminds him that she's in charge when Dallas is gone and that he broke fucking protocol and... It was a science division protocol, and he's the science officer, so he's the one motherfucker that shouldn't have broke the rule. And he says that it was not only an order, but it was also a judgment call that had to be made, and he knew the only way to save Kane was to let him on the ship. Uh -huh. So apparently, Ash just named the facehugger. <laughs> Ash radios Dallas in the cockpit and says that he needs to come check out Kane. He will not say if it's good or bad. He just says that it's interesting and to come and check it out. And that actually happens twice in this movie. It kind of bothers me that they did it the same way twice. But anyways, Dallas radios Ripley to come meet him in the infirmary because he needs his officer there. Once they arrive, we can see that the facehugger is no longer on Kane and is now fucking missing, which is a problem. They search the room for it, and we get a slight jump scare as the dead facehugger randomly falls from the ceiling on Ripley, and it looks like a prank you would pull as a child with a rubber toy and a fishing line, or that Ed Wood you would have used for special effects. Oh, that's nice. So maybe has great special effects. That's not one of them. I mean, I, they probably just dropped a rubber toy on her or whatever, but I don't know. They made that thing out of animal parts. It's not like they could just fabricate rubber special effects really easy back then. <laughs> Anyways, who the fuck knows? 
I don't know why I'm picking on the scene so much. <laughs> Ash pokes it with a tool and it kicks as a reflex. And like I said earlier, they use parts of a crab. They use different animal organs. And the, that's what the eggs and the facehuggers are. They're actual body parts of things. Ripley wants to blow it straight out the fucking airlock, but Ash will not let her. And he wants to take it back to be examined. Dallas says that Ash is the science officer and it's his call because it's a science decision. Ripley says she doesn't trust him and wants to know, because they, they've ran off at this point, right? Like Dallas and Ripley has. Yeah. And Ripley wants to know how long Dallas has known Ash and how long he's worked with them. And Dallas says he's always had a different science officer before on his missions or cargoes or hauls or whatever. Until this mission, they replaced his normal science officer with Ash. I wonder why. <laughs> Dallas is ready to go, and he's just done arguing with shit, and... Make sure it's okay with Brett and Parker and has the ship fucking take off. He's ready to go home. He's, he's done with it. We see the crew hanging out again, and they're having a discussion about being 10 months from home due to being off course from this uh, transmission. They got this SOS call. And then they receive a call from Ash to come see Kane. They want to know what the fuck's up. Ash says it's easier if they come see him. He's playing his fucking game. They only <laughs> programmed him with one kind of sense of humor, apparently. <laughs> Cloak and dagger. They come down and they see that Kane's awake, rubbing his neck, making jokes and acting normal. And he really, he seems fine. He does seem normal. And they ask him what he remembers. And he said that he had a nightmare about being suffocated by something, which is kind of interesting because he was. <laughs> they say that it's time to go back into the freezer and head home. And Kane says that he needs a, a real meal first because he's starving, right? So they decide to have a last supper together. They're all eating, joking, talking shit and making fun of the food and how bad the food is. And things they would rather be eating. I don't think I have to go into that. And then Kane starts to cough and choke. They think it's over the food. And Parker's like, come on, man. It ain't that bad. Exactly. Yeah. And then they realize that it's something worse. And he jumps up. And he's in pain. He's grabbing his chest. He falls over on the table. And everybody jumps to his aid. And they just cut to Ash, who's eating and has a smirk on his face. I want to point that out. I don't know if that was intentional. But he's not being very helpful right there at the beginning. Like, he's, he looks intrigued. He does not look concerned. <laughs> the larval stage. <laughs> you watch Gremlins this year, too? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the putrid stage, the pupil stage. <laughs> They're trying to hold Kane down as he's, I mean, he's seizing, basically. Yeah. Right? It's the best way I would describe it. And they try to wedge a spoon into his mouth, I'm assuming, to prevent him from biting his tongue off. Yeah. And then Ash finally jumps in, and you start to hear a tearing sound, and you see something push up into his shirt and spray blood over everyone's face. And they all look very, very fucking shocked. <laughs> I'll get into this later. Okay. Okay. He then starts to thrash around some more. And then we see a little dick. I mean, a xenomorph burst through his chest and through his shirt. They get ready to smash it until Ash all stops them from killing it, which that one can be explained due to the acid blood and it runs off. Check, please. And they had to shoot it in a way to make it look real with their limited technology. And they did a good fucking job. <laughs> and and honestly, the best part of this, I can only describe this with a reference to seeing Evil Dead, the musical. And anyone that's seen it will, will know it. But it is the best use of a, what the fuck was that <laughs> facial expression on the entire crew. Like, just the look on their face is like they didn't know what was going to happen. That's partially true. <laughs> This seems interesting for many different reasons. One, the cast did not actually know fully what was going to happen. They knew that something was going to come out of Kane's chest. And obviously they knew John Hurt was like laying on the table with his head sticking up with a fake body, right? So like they had that kind of idea. 
but they were not shown or told specifically how it was going to go down. Oh, okay. They also had no clue how much blood to expect. <laughs> Number two, the first attempt to make it happen malfunctioned, and it didn't actually burst through the chest and shirt properly, and it sprayed blood through the shirt and all over everyone's faces, and they looked like, what the fuck, shocked. That was a malfunction. They kept it. Hell yeah. Ridley Scott thought it looked awesome. Why not make it try to pop out twice? Okay. <laughs> And he had that realistic, you know, look on their face. And then thirdly, when they did it for real, because they cut the shirt with razor blades slightly or something to make it pop through easier, it came out and everyone was shocked because they were not told how much blood was going to come out. And they sprayed blood fucking everywhere. <laughs> and they didn't know how the creature was going to come out. They didn't know it was going to be moving like it did with puppeteers and shit. And they were all freaked the fuck out. If you're going to do a scene like this practical, that's the way to do it. Did you just see a dick with legs come out of that guy? I just saw a dick with legs come out of that guy. It really does look like a, a alien penis. <laughs> with cat teeth. <laughs> they now need to have a small funeral for Kane and hunt this fucker down. So we see them all watch a monitor of the airlock and say their farewells as Dallas launches Kane's wrapped body out the airlock into space. And this was actually a little wooden model that the special effects guy made. Like, they're like, what do we want to do? Because... All the ship stuff's done with models. Yeah. One of the models is fucking gigantic. I mean, there, there was a lot of huge modules. But he literally whittled what he wanted Kane wrapped in the blanket to look like. And special effects guy's like, cool, and set it on the model of the airlock and hit it with a fucking air compressor and launched it across the room as a demo. And they're like, that looks great. Let's fucking keep it. <laughs> oh, it's I awesome. love, I love... Here in early days, practical effects. I know. Like, that's, that's what makes that shit so awesome was, how do we do this? We do this. And really, it's inspirational for the indie filmmaker inside of us. You know, like, yeah. how am I going to do this with no money and limited special effects skills? <laughs> <laughs> just, you just think outside the box. They now have to hunt the goddamn thing down, as I said earlier. And Ash has made a device or modified a device or whatever that can sense the alien. Ripley wants to know how. And it senses micro changes in air movements. And they should be able to use that to track the creature down. Brett rigs up a cattle prod or something that can be used like a cattle prod anyways that he says should not pierce its skin if it's even as thin as theirs, but knock it the fuck out. And Parker is armed with a giant net. I don't want to be Parker right now. <laughs> no, fuck no. <laughs> well, also, I say that, but what, what did they see? Uh, true, true, yeah, true, yeah, true. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. It's a little dick with legs and cat teeth. <laughs> <laughs> they start to go on their hunt, and their sensors. <laughs> Jesus, Josh. <laughs> and their sensor starts to sense movement, and Ripley, Brett, and Parker head towards that direction, prod, net, and sensor in hand. They open up a panel only to have the cat Jonesy hiss at them, jump at them and run off. I want to bring up Jonesy. Jonesy was four cats and they needed to figure out how to make it hiss, look angry and make its tail stand up. So they brought a German shepherd on set <laughs> and it was behind a wall and they would set Jonesy up and he would chill and they would lift the wall. Jonesy would see the German shepherd, get pissed, hiss, throw the tail up and fuck off. <laughs> Genius once again. Oh, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Well, I think the dog was in a kennel. It's just the <laughs> cat hadn't seen it. It's like, what the fuck is that smell? Oh, shit, it's a German Shepherd. <laughs> Anyways, Parker has a good laugh at this, and they're all joking, and like, let's get back to hunting down the alien. And then Parker, who is almost always the voice of reason in this group, <laughs> 
points out that they need to go catch the fucking cat or they're going to be chasing that thing all fucking night on the air sensor. Great idea. He's actually correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the great idea stops is they separate. Yeah, yeah. This movie's early enough that it wasn't a trope yet, but they separate. Great initiative, poor execution. (laughs) (laughs) But it's Brett's cat, so he's going to be the one that goes after it as they separate. He corners Jonesy, only to have him hiss at him and run off again, and then he finds some shed skin from the xenomorph on the ground, which we know not much time has passed, but it's already, what, molted, I think would be the word to use. So it's growing. <laughs> we do not work in science field and we have not been in school for a long time. So some of these words are hard, younger viewers. <laughs> You'll be old too one day, goddammit. Oh. But Brett goes into the room where the cat ran off to and he watches these oddly placed and super hellraisery chains start <laughs> swaying the air until, oh shit, one of them's the xenomorph tail and. Brett's fucking dead, and we know how big this thing is, right? Like, in a small amount of time, it, it's much, much larger. They retcon it enough that I mostly get okay with how fast it grows, but it's a little too rapid in this movie. I kind of wish they would have left the repair time frame out and Kane's recovery. Yeah, and just scooched stuff. Just don't put a limit on it. Don't say it takes 17 hours. Say it's going to take me days to fix it. Yeah. Make it look like they checked on Kane multiple times. I mean, I'm not Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott is... Ridley Scott. Fantastic. I love him. And he's got the accolades to prove that he knows what he's doing. But I don't know. I just feel like this is one of those times where you didn't need a time frame because most casual fans, I don't think, are going to nitpick this. But when you've watched these movies enough time and the series and you know how they work, and even just the first one in a vacuum, like, it's been, what, hours? Yeah, at best. He's man-sizing hours. Like, it's just (laughs) him finding that, you know the outer skin or outer shell, shell or whatever that molted off. Like even then it like things don't molt into 50 times their size. You know? yeah. <laughs> I kind of got ahead of myself. Sorry, but I do want to say that this is the first time you see that the xenomorphs have like a xenomorph head inside the mouth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it comes out and punctures Brett's skull to kill him and drags his body off. Right. Yeah. And in the director's cut, when it would show the chains hanging, one of the times you saw that the xenomorph was hanging by its tail upside down next to the chains and swaying with them like a bat, kind of. Oh, okay. So they let you know it was there before. The, oh, shit, there's a xenomorph here. <laughs> I kind of wish they would have kept it, but I, I guess, I mean, in the way it's finally edited, it would be odd that you saw it that way because you, you think you're seeing it from Brett's perspective. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's why. They know more than I do. It's a good scare. That way. I mean, it's the first, like, kill. I mean, yeah, yeah, Kane died from the chest burster, but it's, it's kind of different, right? Like, this is the first time we see the xenomorph kill itself. Yes. But we cut to the crew, and Ripley and Parker seem to know exactly what happened and how big the xenomorph was. I put in my notes, I assume it's because of a cut scene, but further research, and I apparently didn't update my notes, <laughs> they actually ran into the room and saw the xenomorph jump down, puncture Brett's skull, grab it, and take off. Oh. So there's an actual cut scene where Ripley and Parker see Brett die. Okay. But anyway, so my assume a cut scene, yes, there was a cut scene. And what they do know is that it's using the air shafts to move around the ship, right? Yep. So Dallas has this plan to force it through all of the air ducts until it's in the airlock area and they can open the airlock and blow it out into fucking space. Pretty good idea for something that bleeds acid that's stuck on the ship, right? <laughs> Parker says that he doesn't really think they grasp the size of what Ash refers to as Kane's son. This son of a bitch is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Everyone seems to go with Dallas's plan after Ash says that changes in temperature might be able to actually scare the xenomorph, like they go from hot to cold and things like that and get it to move through air ducts. 
Also, I keep saying Xenomorph because I'm a nerd and followed this franchise since I was a teenager in the early 90s. However, I do not think the word Xenomorph is ever actually used until Aliens. <laughs> Am I correct, Josh? I think you're correct. Because like in Aliens, they seem to know what they are. Yeah. Was this another fucking bug hunt? Getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> the plan is to have Ash on airlock duty to open the airlock because we know he's great at doing that. That's how we got here. And have Lambert, Parker, and Ripley on hatch duty. And Dallas is basically going to go through the hatches and they're going to use like the flamethrower and stuff and the, we'll call it an HVAC system because I don't know what you call it in space to make it hot and uncomfortable and seal the hatches in the air duct system until it is in the airlock room, right? That is the plan. Yep. Before they execute said plan, Dallas decides to go to Mother since it is an AI mainframe and find out his chances of survival. <laughs> like a magic eight ball, Outlook's not good. <laughs> and at some point he wants some specifics on why it's so bad. And I think mother literally says does not compute. Like it doesn't understand any of his feelings or concerns. It's just do your job. <laughs> Humans make dumb decisions. <laughs> yeah. But with plan in hand and Dallas knowing his fucking odds, he's still got to save his crew because he's the captain and he starts to barrel through the air ducts as Lambert runs the air movement sensor thingy. <laughs> uh, the sensors get a lot cooler in the next movie. And Ripley closes the hatches behind Dallas to make sure the alien can't retreat back, right? Lambert gets a read on it and sends Dallas the direction to go and he makes it to that point and he finds some slime as they start to see it coming for him on the sensor. And then they hear him scream on the radio. And we then cut to Parker saying that he found Dallas's flamethrower, but no Dallas and no blood. <laughs> Ripley says that they all have to stick to the plan and keep it going. And Lambert has a breakdown and says that they need to all fuck off in the shuttle. Ripley reminds her that there's not enough room and Parker just wants to kill the fucking thing. And Ripley continues to elaborate on the plan and, and Parker's like, as long as we kill the fucking thing, and, <laughs> and, which is that's this big thing. And I, I like how she responds with, yes, of course, that means killing the fucking thing. <laughs> Ridley Scott wasn't happy with her performance in the scene and made her do it a lot to get to where we got. Uh, he had to keep her monitor that she was the fucking boss and she didn't like these people and what she said went and she was acting like they're friends and family, which is what the crew was, but she's supposed to be the boss at this point. And he pissed her off enough that it obviously worked, and she gave one hell of a speech that made Parker feel better because obviously it means killing. <laughs> <laughs> but since Parker just wants to kill the son of a bitch, he goes to refuel the flamethrower to get the fucker ready, and Ripley wants to know if there are any suggestions from Ash or Mother, and he says that they're still collating. And she says, fuck this, I'm in charge now, I'm just going to go talk to Mother myself. And we see her in the little room, and all she can get out of Mother is that there is a special order 937, and that only the science officer is authorized. Now that she's the captain of the ship, she's actually able to override this, which seems like a flaw in uh, what I'm going to say, Waylin Company. I'll elaborate on that in a second. It's, it's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> <laughs> which makes me wonder if Dallas knew more than he said, too, then. Yeah. But she uses her new, newly uh, earned captain status to override the command, and she finds out that they were all sent there on purpose to gather a specimen and bring it back at all costs, and the entire crew is expendable. What a dick. <laughs> the reason why I said Waylin is because it's referred to as Waylin in the movie, even on Dallas's beer cans. But by the second film, it is Waylind hyphen Yulani Corporation. Yeah. Now, 50-something years goes by between the first two movies, so maybe it was just Waylind originally, and then they... 
partner with the Lighting Corporation. I think it's funny, like Joss Whedon, Ridley Scott, David Banner, whoever. Like all these people like to make it where like in the future America is partnered with China or Japan or something. That's one day. Amazon. I still call it Whalen Corp no matter what. Right, right, right. Well, it's interesting though because there's no D at the end in the first film. It's just Whalen. Yeah. So I, I don't know what caused that change. Random fact, I just want to throw it in there. <laughs> but anyways, I, I kind of killed the uh, dramaticness of the scene. Yes, I made up a word, but you, you know what the fuck it means. But Ripley gets this depressing information and leans back, and we can see that Ash pops up basically like Michael fucking Myers. <laughs> like he was sitting beside her, and you couldn't see him until she leaned back. And um, they get in a fight. She tosses him around a bit and breaks some stuff and storms off, right? And I mean tosses him about, like, just grabbing him and shaking and yelling at him, right? Like, it's not super violent yet. It's just like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And she storms off. He then cuts her off and pops up in front of her in the hallway, once again like Michael fucking Myers. <laughs> and he's really creepy and seems mostly like Ash, other than the fact that he's sweating milk. <laughs> <laughs> and she tries to walk by him, and he shoves her with some extra gusto this time, and then yanks some hair out of her head, and he effortlessly tosses her around the room in the ship and then tries to choke her with a magazine down her throat until Parker and Lambert intervene and save her life. Interestingly enough, they wanted to make it look like he had weird robot sexual tension and couldn't have sex with her, so he was trying to handle it through the way he killed it. I think it's really weird how much weird sex stuff gets referenced in the idea for making things. I just thought he was trying to choke her with a magazine and make it look like she like suffocated on herself or something. Does that mean, I don't know. Does that mean the milk sweat is supposed to be jizz? I, they did not go into that. I think that was just supposed to let you know he wasn't human at that point. I mean, I know they use KY for the for the drool, for the for the mouths, for the xenomorphs, yeah. but uh, come on. I meant to say that. <laughs> Any slime they find on the ground or you see on a xenomorph is KY jelly. Always. Pre-80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, Parker and Lambert, like I said, are trying to intervene and save Ripley's life. And Ash grabs Parker's chest like he's doing like an Asian pressure point. Or no, no, no. It's like uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He's going in for Kalima. the heart. And yeah, yeah, Kalima. <laughs> and uh, Parker screams like he's fucking dying, like it hurts so bad. And he drops away and then picks up a fire extinguisher. Slamming it into Ash's head so fucking hard that he knocks his head off, and we can see that he's made of milk, caviar, and spaghetti. Because <laughs> that's what he's made out of, and that's what sprays out newses everywhere. It's really creepy and disturbing, and yes, I did always think of milk, but I really never realized it was angel hair pasta and caviar eggs. That's friggin' or awesome. Caviar, it's redundant, but you know what I mean. Yeah. That's what they use, so it, it fucking works. Well, it's one of those things that it's, it's to us, it's been a human, and it, it's yeah. it's like, oh shit, it's not human. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that shit yeah, fucked me up yeah. in both the movies, man. Like, that's some of the most, right. most disgusting shit in the first two movies to me. <laughs> well, Ash on the Table, here in a minute, always disgusted me in a weird kind of body horror kind of uh, way. okay. They handle Bishop a lot better. <laughs> Anyways, robot sprays milk and spaghetti and caviar. They take this hunk of shit <laughs> to the bridge or something or somewhere. It might even be the dining room. And they hook it up on the table for a bit of what we're going to call an interrogation. And he says that the xenomorph is the ultimate killing machine with no thought or remorse. And that priority one by the company was to bring it back. Where it can run for office. They decide. Yeah. <laughs> they decide at this point, fuck it. We're going to take our chances. And all right off in the shuttle and blow up this fucking ship. And Parker roast Ash's ass with the flamethrower. I think it's Parker that does it. <laughs> and then he explodes. 
Ripley heads to get the shuttle ready, while Parker and Lambert go to get the coolant from the main ship to take back to the shuttle, which I think was one of the things stolen for Event Horizon, right? <laughs> yeah, only it was the CO2 scrubbers of Event Horizon. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, the shuttle's made to take one person back in stasis. Yeah. So they need the extra coolant to keep everyone alive in the ship. Or at least a cat. Or at least a cat. <laughs> they have a plan to set the 10-minute self-destruct sequence on the ship. And Parker lets them know that if they don't take off in the shuttle in time, they're not going to need a fucking rocket. <laughs> Ripley decides to go back for the goddamn cat Jonesy while Parker and Lambert are attacked by the xenomorph. Yes, it really does just kind of happen that quickly. <laughs> and he's really fucking huge now, bigger than a man. And this is when we get our first good look at his full body. Parker wants to torch it with the flamethrower, but Lambert's in the way, screaming and whining. He doesn't want to accidentally torch her, even though I kind of feel like at this point, yes, you're going to have some trauma, but maybe you should just kill the fucking alien. <laughs> he decides to be the hero and try to tackle the xenomorph, and he gets the KY-covered inner mouth to the head, just like we saw to Brett earlier, but as he dies, he yells, get ready to roll, because he's trying to save the team, right? Like, he knows he's dying and he's stalling. Yeah. It then sends its tail out after Lambert, which I think is actually Brett's legs because she wasn't on set when they did that. And we hear her scream in Ripley's monitor. And since she catches all this on the radio, she's trying to make it to him and save him, but she's too late and just finds their bloodied corpses. But she does manage to grab the goddamn cat <laughs> and the cooling units and head off. <laughs> I thought of something else that was interesting facts when I said that Lambert wasn't actually there and it was actually Brett that stood there and they made it act like it was her when the tail went around when she was cast to play lambert she thought she had the role of ripley all the way to the point that she showed up to get her costume made and they're like here's your lambert costume and she's like but i'm ripley and they're like no you're not <laughs> <laughs> i meant to say that earlier i thought that was kind of interesting you've got a lot of reading to do today <laughs> god i don't know why i left out all these cast factoids I'm, this is a good time to put them in those i'm about to dive straight into the third act they really wanted john hurt to play kane oh john hurt really wanted to play kane he ended up having a previous contract that popped up, and he had to go handle that. The movie got stalled. I think that's when the storyboards got made, uh, or the, whatever the stall was, right? And he was able to finish the other movie and um, come back and do it, which is kind of neat. Okay. Because um, they actually cast – I'll put this in the update notes because I don't feel like interrupting me and Josh because we've had enough interruptions due to – me taking care of three kids and a, and a sick wife today. But uh, there was actually another actor that was supposed to play Kane because John Hurt couldn't because the other movie was finishing up. And there's actually filmed scenes where he did a good part of the movie in a day. Like they did a lot of, because Kane's only in the movie so much, right? Yeah. So they did a lot of the Kane scenes like day one, day two, day three. And the actor looked like shit and looked like he was dying. And Ridley Scott stopped it. Talked to him, found out he felt like shit, sent him to the doctor. He was diabetic and didn't know it. Oh, damn. Yeah, and he was starting to have his first, like, diabetic attack, basically. So there's actually a scene shot with a different actor. He's not known enough that I'm like, oh, it's this motherfucker. But I, <laughs> I'll, I'll put it on the on the update notes on the season premiere. But, uh, yeah, they shot it, and then he was sick, and then John Hurt finished his film and came back and did his. So it's just interesting how everything fell together for this movie. Damn. Anyways, it's time for us to dive into the third act as Ripley hauls ass for the shuttle and she almost makes it all the way to the, I think they refer to it as the lifeboat in the, in the movie. And she hears the xenomorph around the corner and it's basically guarding the shuttle entrance. I don't know if it's intentionally guarding the shuttle entrance, but she can't fucking get there. She drops the cat carrier and books it back into the ship, right? And the whole time we hear the self-destruct countdown going Yup. We see the xenomorph walk up to the cat carrier and it starts to check it out and then gets mad and swats it away towards the wall. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but it wasn't happy with it. 
During all of this, and maybe some of the previous scenes when Parker and Lambert got attacked, uh, you see her go up and down different maintenance hatches through the floors, trying to find shit and sneak around the xenomorph. Yeah. But you never actually see what happens as she's changing floors. You just see the main, like, deck area. This was a deleted scene. She found a room that was basically full of, like, cocoon shit from the xenomorph. And it had Brett's dead body in there full of maggots, because originally they were going to make it where the xenomorph had maggots in its mouth for some reason when it attacked things. Okay. And he was dead and had the maggots on him. And Dallas was cocooned in the wall. Now, my memory of how it went versus how it actually was going down is different. <laughs> I thought he was cocooned on the wall with a xenomorph baby in his chest from a facehugger. And I'm pretty sure that's how they do it going forward in the franchise. Yeah. However, in the screenplay... If you notice his feet are in a weird spot, if you watch the director's cut versus his head, he's turning into an egg. Oh. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to make it where the xenomorph could take a person back and turn them into an egg, because that's really fucking stupid to me. Yeah. No, no, no. We need an ovipositor. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, there's that word again. But basically, she finds Dallas, he's in pain, and he starts screaming for her to kill him, and she torches him and the whole room with the flamethrower. But yeah, in, in my head canon... He was pregnant with a xenomorph baby from a facehugger, not turning into an egg. <laughs> Actually, there's not another facehugger, though, is there? Not that we're ever shown. There's no eggs. Yeah, yeah. So that scene's fucked. We're just going to retcon it from memory <laughs> and the franchise from here on out. Anyways, uh, we see Ripley trying to load some of the cooling units back into the primary ship to prevent the core from blowing up because the way they started the self-destruct, it doesn't actually have a self-destruct. It's a towing vessel. If they take enough of the cooling units out, the core hits critical mass and will blow up. Yep. And there's a five minute mark where as long as she can restore the cooling units and lock it down in time, it'll cancel the self-destruct sequence that is initiated when it overeats. And that's all they had to do in Chernobyl, but they thought it couldn't all be going wrong at the same time. <laughs> okay, there's a little bit of history lesson for you. <laughs> but it's basically, she gets the last cooling unit in and shuts it after the timer hits the five minute mark. So it's too fucking late. The ship has to blow now. She starts to cuss out mother, like because mother didn't give her the extra second for some reason, <laughs> and takes off for the shuttle to take her chances because she's fucked either way now. The xenomorph is now missing from the hallways of the deck, and she grabs the cat carrier and heads into the shuttle, which appears to be alien-free and launches the shuttle from the Nostromo. She gets away as we see the Nostromo blow up in the distance. I got you. You And she takes a moment to catch her breath. And Ripley gets the cat out of the carrier and takes it towards the hibernation pod and sets it down in the pod. And she starts to prepare herself for hibernation, right? Because they got to get down to like the tank tops and the undies. They're originally nude, but I don't remember who was like, do we really fucking need this in the movie? We don't need titties and junk everywhere. So they cut all that. So she's trying to get into the, the underwear for the pod. And she starts to mess with some equipment on the wall in her underwear before getting into the pod. And if you pay attention to the hoses and the containers and stuff on the wall it really seems to model a xenomorph <laughs> and it's because it was the wall was designed to camouflage if a xenomorph was laying there <laughs> in the fetal position and it is and its head moves towards her and it slowly swats a hand at her like very slowly and it falls, like bitch right? you know how long it took me to me wedge myself in here <laughs> i'm glad you said that they actually did not wedge the actor in there they built the set wall around him and he was stuck in there for hours <laughs> as they built the wall and started filming and nice. when they tried to get him to come out of it, they tore the suit so bad the tail got ripped off. <laughs> it really was so a wedge in there. Thanks for the segue. Yeah, yeah. 
No, no, no. Built in. <laughs> Wedged and built in are different. <laughs> but since it's moving so slowly, she decides to run to the closet and hide. And it just seems to lay there lazily and move around very, very slowly. And she watches it groggily do its thing while she puts on her spacesuit. She then heads into the shuttle proper and starts singing You Are My Lucky Star as she buckles herself in. And the alien starts to get up. It was Sigourney Weaver's idea to sing that song. And the studio didn't want to do it because it was going to be expensive. And Ridley Scott thought it'd be cool and he let her do it anyways. And had listened to the producer's bitch as they paid a fortune for her to be able to sing the lines to that song. Because Sigourney <laughs> thought it'd be cool. Awesome. Awesome story. Scott insisted that it stays. Ridley Scott that is. Oh, that's great. Anyway, she gets fully buckled in, grabs Jonesy, hits a button to spray some air out of some hoses. I don't know why there's so many buttons to make hoses randomly spray air out, but <laughs> this pisses the alien off, makes it squirm out of its cozy little hole, and it comes out for her, and she opens the airlock in the shuttle. The alien is sucked out, grabs onto the ship's exit doors to hold on. She then fires this grappling hook gun that she found in uh, the closet or something and fires it at the xenomorph, hitting it in the head, knocking it loose. But it grabs onto the grappling hook and it's holding onto it as the door is shut and it's hanging on. And it tries to crawl up into one of the thrusters and she sees it and engages the engines and makes the thrusters fire, slinging the xenomorph off into space. Because as we know, it can apparently survive in different environmental blah, blah, blah. It didn't freeze. Right? Yeah. We then hear her give her final report of the Nostromo, explaining that she is the only survivor and that all cargo and the ship was destroyed. She says that she should be in system, meaning our solar system, in six weeks, and hopefully the network will pick her up. What could go wrong? <laughs> we see her in hibernation. Credits. The end. A few things to point out here. There was an alternate ending where they didn't plan on Ripley making it, and the camera panned out to show... There was like an egg cocoon thing stuck on the bottom of the ship. Ah. Okay. That would have been We're on the bottom of her pod. I don't remember specifically, but she was bringing a, a, somebody with her, right? They wanted to make it where Ripley made it out, so they changed it. Don't think that was in the director's cut, but there's a lot of shit in the director's cut. And you can either watch the director's cut if you've never seen it, or you can go to YouTube, like most movies, and search for alien director's cut, deleted scenes, and just see the scenes. Um, one thing I did want to note is I always thought it was really dumb how slow the alien moved. Okay. And didn't attack her. And oh, and just I that one shot. Any okay, explanation. Okay. Yeah, there at the end, why didn't it just fucking kill her, right? I think at some point in my life, I had just decided it was going into hibernation. But Ridley Scott had addressed it. Do you know the actual answer? I don't, and that would make sense that it was getting in a, a tight little corner to know, like smart enough to know what was going on and that it was just going to have to chill if it wanted to make it to another place to be able to find more, right. more subjects to impregnate and carry on the species. Yeah. That was never explained to me that way. I, I, I invented the headcanon, but Ridley Scott actually explained it. Oh, wait. So it's not that they're allergic to cats? No, not allergic oh, okay. to cats. <laughs> so he said that he wanted it to have the lifespan and life cycle of like a fly oh. or another insect. And it was dying. It was actually dying in the ship there. Like it, it, it hatched, it fed, and it was now dying. I'm actually okay with that explanation from Ridley Scott if it hadn't only been a day or two. Like, I don't like how it went from, I mean, the goddamn thing gestated inside Kane longer than it was alive on the ship. Yeah. And it's this giant, you know, seven foot tall, fucking seven and a half foot tall xenomorph and killing everybody. And now it's dead, right? Like, oh, I'm dying. Oh, yeah. I know flies die after what, like seven days, they say, the average lifespan of a house fly or something. Yeah, shit. something. It would make sense if they didn't put a time frame on it, like I said earlier. And it's kind of crazy that all this happened in just like two or three days. In my head, 
it was hibernating to get to the next area. And in my head, Dallas had a baby in his chest. I don't know from what. Ah. <laughs> and that's that's what I explained to myself to keep the franchise going. But <laughs> Ridley Scott didn't know he was making a giant franchise when he made this. He was just making a movie, a movie that he didn't write, but he believed in. And he didn't have a lot of cred behind his name yet, but he pushed what he wanted done and what the writer wanted done like he had the cred. <laughs> and he made the movie that he wanted to make for the most part. Spawned a franchise, and, you know, it's just so funny how this franchise has taken off because this movie is a cult classic and was also a success, and it's referenced so much. And when it came out, you know, Star Wars had just made a fortune off of toys, so Kenner decided to make alien toys, but kids couldn't watch the fucking movie, so it bombed. <laughs> they did do a second push with aliens, but they did it not from the movie, kind of like it was its own thing, and I actually owned quite a few of those okay. when we were kids. Like, you had bull aliens and stuff. Oh, that weren't yeah. All these chimera fuckers. Yeah, yeah, I remember you at least played with them in my, in my house. And I don't know if you remember, I used to have comic books of aliens when we were preteen and teens. Yeah, yeah. And the lore was always established that they lay, the xenomorph or the facehugger lays the egg, and the xenomorph is based off of whatever species it grew Yeah. In. And the toys did that a lot. You had like dog xenomorphs and shit like that because of what they were bred in. And, and they might have gone a little further into that. I, I don't remember some of the later films. But it's interesting that we had Alien, which was a horror movie in space. It was Jaws in space. It was Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. It is sci-fi, but it is the most horror sci-fi movie that I recall. And then how things changed when the sequel came out quite a bit later, which Josh will get into, I'm sure. And then what the franchise blossomed into as a whole as we started getting Alien versus Predator shit, just because the end of Predator 2 had a xenomorph skull <laughs> in the ship when, when Glover shows up. You know, I just it's, it's fucking crazy. But I'm sure you guys have all seen this movie, and hopefully I was able to provide a little bit of information you didn't know. And Josh, do you have anything you want to add? Um, I do want to add a couple of quick uh, cultural impact things from this movie. Um, one, the unlicensed arcade game that I believe was flat out called Xenomorph that actually showed the different life cycles of the aliens that you were fighting in that game. But more importantly, Metroid. Metroid obviously hmm. pulled from Alien so hardcore. You got Samus as your your strong female lead. You've got Ridley's lair instead of, you could say that's Ridley Scott. You could say it was a take okay, on okay. Ripley, but, but definitely, and it, it's been, been admitted in interviews that it was pulled from. It's another one of those movies that I think money says different, <laughs> but I think mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. the time um, it was another one that nobody knew how far it was going to reach. And like you said, to the point now that you get into, you know, Prometheus and, and going off into the fucking predator right. franchise <laughs> like you know, who would have ever thought yeah. that kind of shit right right right. And, uh, still with us today yeah I, I do think it's interesting like i never saw covenant but i thought the trailer looked interesting i had no clue that it was a sequel to prometheus and that the prequel series is a trilogy in itself yeah so that really kind of has me excited to to finish the ripley saga and then maybe down the road do prometheus and covenant which i haven't seen i almost watch it just to watch it but i didn't want to get ahead of myself and get get too invested in this that's interesting we said though metroid is one of my favorite nes games and i've beat it multiple times and yeah i mean when you say it it's obvious a lot of the references but i never realized that uh that's phenomenal yeah but yeah it, it did do a lot and it, it gets ripped off a bit and stuff and i'm not just talking about Spaceballs having a parody of it but like there's a lot of things that were invented here that were used in other movies. But this is going to be the first time we've covered like a, a drama 
horror movie in space and then going into like an action movie that kind of carries <laughs> on. Really, it really it is the first time I think we've dove into straight action. Oh, yeah. Other than the Blade movies, it's, it's begun vampires. It's a little bit more hit or miss. But anyways, Josh is going to carry us into the next film with 1986's Aliens. Okay, so it goes without saying as we get into this one that I'm fucking lazy. And when I looked at the runtime of the theatrical cut versus the director's cut, I went, fuck that. The theatrical cut's long enough. (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple of important things with regards to that that I think Jesse's going to chime in on. (laughs) I will help you guys along the way because I did do a little bit of accidental background research in the second movie while doing the first movie. And I realized that I don't know if I've ever seen a version besides the director's cut. I've, I've watched this movie most of my life. It's one of my favorite action movies. And maybe when I was younger, I saw the theatrical cut. But there's things in the director's cut that I don't see how they cut them out of the fucking movie and it made it. But I'll address them as they come up as long as I remember. But I watched the director's cut. I did not watch the theatrical cut. But it, it, to Jesse, this was the theatrical cut. <laughs> <laughs> so this was directed by uh, James Cameron. Who? Yeah, I know, right? Um, he he did like the Terminator, the Abyss. Um, what was that boat movie? Titanic. Um, <laughs> I think he might also be famous for something called Avatar that has a sequel in theaters like 10, 12 years oh, later. Oh, yeah, right yeah, because it takes like 15 years to make each one of those. You know, you want to make that joke, and a lot of people do, but I, I do want to say when James Cameron has a vision, He takes as long as it needs and invents new technology (laughs) to make the movie because we're, we're not covering avatar here, but he wanted to have a lot of underwater shit. So, you know, he threw the money in to have a deep sea submarine made that could go into the Mariana trench so that he could pilot it himself and film the Mariana trench to have ideas for avatar too. That's James Cameron. Um, Which is phenomenal, but like, uh, just like Ridley Scott, he's like an amateur here, right? Well, here's here's the thing, and that's that's exactly what I want to talk about real quick. It's not a director's episode, but I do want to bring this up. You got to remember that even by '86, James Cameron being your director has done your fucking job at one point. the The man worked. <laughs> he did. He used. To, he he did matte paintings. He did special effects with John Carpenter. He's been a cam- mm-hmm. he had already been a cameraman. He had already been a DP. Like, there's a lot of people that are like, this guy's such an asshole to work with, and it's like. He knows what he wants, do it his way and, you know, take it for what it is. And I just want to get that out of the way because he's probably a pain in the ass to work with and he's may not always be right, but like he got hired, it's his vision and that's what he <laughs> wants done. And we'll, we'll get into the details on that when we get to it. I've never actually heard that he was an asshole to work with, maybe from some of his wives because he's worked with most of his <laughs> wives at some point. All eight of them. But uh, yeah, he, he really is. It really no, but it, it's like five or six in all seriousness. Okay, okay. Um, And there's actually, I don't know where you go in the backstory, but there's a confusing story to me about a honeymoon in this. And then I'm thinking of Near Dark and the story that I know about Near Dark and a wife there. And I'm like, how did all this fucking transpire? (laughs) But that's not what you're talking about. But it it is really funny. This is a movie that Josh and I have have wanted to cover for years and kind of fought over and like, does it go into an alien franchise or does it go into James Cameron so we can do it with Terminator? Cause it'd be fucking phenomenal. To just do this in, in Terminator, but <laughs> you got T2, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves now on this one. We'll, we'll get into how he got brought into the project, but uh, we did have a couple of writers here. We had uh, David Giller, um, who mostly did some comedies, nothing like okay. like major genre or anything like that. Um, and also Walter Hill, same thing, like action comedies like 48 Hours or The Getaway. 
Okay. Now, and I'm going to get ahead of myself, James Cameron is credited with the screenplay, but he flat out admits that he already had something written when this treatment was brought to him, and he basically retooled something he already had and turned it into mm-hmm. Aliens. Most of it I'm going to cite in my notes came from the Alien Anthology box set, which had like three okay. hours of documentaries on it. And there's conflicting stuff that I've read other places. There's conflicting stories on this fucking Blu-ray where they ask one person okay. about how something went down and somebody else about how something went down. And it's the complete fucking opposite. So it's not all going to be God's truth in this. Bear with me. That's one thing I liked about Beasts Within for the first film is that it seemed pretty definitive and had most of the cast and crew on there. And even things that were conflicting, like there was joke arguments between the people. Yeah. Right. Like, like, so you found the truth in the middle kind of thing. So <laughs> I'll get to the biggest one when we get to the tea cart story. Okay. But we do have Sigourney Weaver back again as Ripley. We have Carrie Hinn as Newt and she had never acted before. Or after Mm -hmm. until doing a small role in 2020. Oh, really? I didn't know she'd even done another small role. I assumed any other credit she had was a documentary about this. I know, right? (laughs) Which was real interesting because they were, they were doing casting and they did not want a little girl with a British accent. And she was basically half British and she was spotted at a school while they were scouting for other kids and just happened to grab her, had her read a couple of lines and they're like, she's new. Let's do it. Yeah. She's new to fucking me. I think she's probably the origin of shitting on child actors. Possibly. Michael fucking Bean as Hicks. Not for the first two weeks of shooting, though. What? Yeah. He he came in as a replacement, but we'll get to that. We know him, of course, Kyle fucking Reese from Terminator. What year is this? (laughs) The Abyss, Cherry Falls, bunch of other shit. Oh, my God. I forgot he's the fucking sheriff in Cherry Falls, isn't he? I'm so glad you made me watch that movie. That was a very painful movie to watch (laughs) for our slasher series to start this show out. Paul Reiser is Burke, which is just real fun to see him as an asshole. (laughs) Like this level of asshole. (laughs) Right, right. And and he's perfect in this movie. I couldn't see anybody else playing the corporate douchebag that he plays. But it's like you tell somebody who hasn't seen the flick and it's like, you're talking about the guy from Mad About You? I'm like, yes, yes. He's right. a great corporate asshole. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he did stand-up comedy before any of his acting, like a lot of people in that era. But, like, I don't know. I, I wish I would have seen him as a bad guy a lot more. Yeah. Or even a concerned father, because he starts that off fucking great, too. Kind of. <laughs> He's a good actor in this He's better than most comedians turn oh, actor, I think, absolutely. in this movie. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We'll just credit James Cameron, because why the fuck not? <laughs> Motherfucking Lance Henriksen as Bishop. Of course, a lot of credits, but Close Encounters, oh, yeah. Piranha 2. Always for me, I go back to fucking Pumpkinhead. Speaking of concerned <laughs> fathers. Um, <laughs> in Near Dark. Yes. He's fucking phenomenal in that. Half half this cast is in yes. Near Dark. He is He's an actor that I think can run the gamut of good guy to the worst of bad guys. Back and forth all day, and you believe it every time. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Kevin Smith makes a lot of jokes about how he'd cast Ben Affleck as anything like New Jaws movie. Ben Affleck right. plays the shark. No, Lance Hendrickson plays the fucking shark. <laughs> yeah. I know I've said this before on this podcast, but there's certain actors that were genre actors and horror actors that I feel like should have the accolades of some of the bigger actors in Hollywood, right? Like, oh, yeah. be as infamous as them. And he goes into that list. Like, like this guy liked to do genre flicks, and he did genre flicks, but he had the chops to be up there with the big boys. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Speaking of chops, Bill fucking Paxton <laughs> is Hudson. I always go back to Weird Science, Twister, and more recently, for me, Near Dark. But he's he's definitely the the comedic relief. He's a little over the top. And at first it's like, well, this is going to get annoying. And then as it goes on, you're like, oh, no, this is this is what we need <laughs> right. as, as the film goes on. <laughs> Bill Paxton is one of the few actors that I can say is always Bill Paxton in a movie, but it's different. Yeah. Because the Twister version of Bill Paxton is different than the Near Dark version, which is different from the Weird Science version. But it's always Bill Paxton. Damn, yeah. And it was a tragic loss on that one. Absolutely. Now, for special visual effects and special makeup effects, there's really way too much to mention. You had so many people plucked from so many places that we're, we're talking over 60 people of, of, no, of at least a third of them being notoriety. And this goes back to our joke from earlier. It's all these people is like, well, I worked on a couple of Roger Corman films, so I got brought in. And, <laughs> and, and that's true for like half this fucking crew. And this movie's probably actually late enough that like a lot of the earlier horror movies, you have a lot of the Star Wars, like yep. the light and magic crew on them. And you probably don't have it on this movie because we've had three Star Wars movies by now and they're now. Busy. I do Star Wars movies for a living. <laughs> yeah. One quick thing I note, and then I have a question for you if you don't mind. Yep. I do want to point out Jeanette Goldstein is Private Vasquez because I think she's one of the other main characters in the movie. And it, it's just funny to go back to that whole near dark story with. Cameron's ex-wife, which apparently was not his ex-wife during all this, but bringing in Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein, like, right, using them in Near Dark because he knew them from this shit, and then, like, Jeanette Goldstein gets thrown in Terminator 2, like, it's this whole thing, you yep. know, it's kind of fascinating. It is this whole twisting tale. And I know some shit happened in between Alien and Aliens, but what caused the seven-year gap? So, from what was at least the most expounded on or expanded on from what I was watching was the original makers right out the gate. Let's do a sequel. And Fox was like, no, we're mm -hmm. just not interested in it. And it kept getting brought up. And it was like one of those things that an idea would, would come up, it gets shelved. It eventually comes up in another meeting. So there eventually ended up being like a treatment or a spec script, something that was kind of like at least the bones okay. for an Aliens movie. There's conflicting stuff about this, but it's been said that once Terminator came out, it was like, okay, we're interested in this again, going off this weird sci-fi angle again, or an actual, just a reading of Cameron's script mm -hmm. for the Terminator got Fox interested in this idea again. So James Cameron was brought in very early on and it was originally just going to be as a writer. So he, mm -hmm. he did, this is conflicting again, the first 90 pages of a script or a treatment, depending on who you ask that, mm -hmm. that Fox got to see for aliens or what would become aliens. And they liked it so much that they're like, we had a slot for this. Cause you know how it is with the studios. Like we have this slot this year. Yeah. We're going to make this movie. And they're like, look, we'll even, we'll give you more time to finish the script because we want you to do it. And if that's not good enough, you can direct it too. And that's when he's like, okay, I will do this. But now what Cameron himself said was he actually took something he had already written and retooled it as an aliens movie. <laughs> nice. So obviously out the gate, James Cameron's like, we're not doing this without Sigourney Weaver. And yeah. sent her the script. She's like, I'm in. And then Fox said, we're not paying her what she's asking for. And yeah. Cameron stood his ground and Sigourney Weaver stood her ground. And as we all know, she's in the fucking flick. I love hearing stories like that. And that was one of the few things I accidentally heard doing research uh, for the first movie <laughs> was that uh, Sigourney Weaver said in the documentary for the first film that they approached her many times for a sequel. 
And every time she read the script and said it was shit, and she wasn't going to fucking do yeah, it. Yeah, because that- And then she read the James Cameron one, and she only did it for one reason, which was cut from the film, and I'll cover it when you get there. <laughs> now, to get into the, there is a change in the look of the Xenomorphs, but uh, this time around, you got Stan fucking Winston. So yeah. nobody can be mad about that, but James Cameron nope. hated the shiny, reflected reflective head the the it being you know chrome dome kind even though it was black it was so reflective and uh he went on this thing about how the way i want these to move and attack it's not the one scary thing in the shadows like it was in the first movie the first movie was a horror movie this needs to be sheer terror right And in that vein he made it a point to have suits done and he hired dancers acrobats and stuntmen to play the xenomorphs kind of like dog soldiers being smart enough to have dancers so they could move more elegantly and fast and it was a good if you really look at the two different ones like the classic alien look is better but to have them do what they needed to do in this movie this was the right fucking call in my opinion and interestingly enough for some reason they wanted giger xenomorphs in the original movie to be translucent there's actually shots of a dude in black tights in a translucent xenomorph exoskeleton. Oh, wow. It's the best way I can explain it. <laughs> so uh, this was primarily shot in two locations uh, in in London. Um, well, in London and just outside of London because you had a power plant in London and Pinewood fucking studios. <laughs> now, as far as James Cameron, the director, and all of his history of knowing how to do everything in film production, Every old school practical trick that you can think of was used in this. I mean, right down to overcranking, undercranking, mats, miniatures, bigatures, rear projection, um, which the rear projection doesn't really hold up. There are some shit in this that is miniatures that I never knew it was miniatures. There's some shit that is foreground miniatures used as backgrounds like you would with a matte painting, but they used physical sets okay. to do it. One in particular that we will go into detail on. It, it doesn't get brought up enough in the industry, but I really feel like just under George Lucas, that James Cameron was the second godfather of compositing. Yes. He does some absurd shit. I don't think he gets enough credit for it because it is usually on the heels of George Lucas and ILM doing it, but he figured out a cheaper way to do it without a studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not only that. It's that everybody's like, oh, James Cameron, the director, you know, oh, he makes those big movies and he has enough money to hire p- the people to do that. It's like, no, you don't understand the shit he cut his teeth on. That's the thing. Right. Now, if you really pay attention, you'll notice that a lot of shit in this movie is actually made from scrap airplane parts and scrap helicopter parts. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is one of the production designer's brother was either in the Royal Navy or Royal Air Force or had access to the scrapyards from the Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, whatever it was. And it was just like, hey, come grab this. Like, so the landing gear off of this is from that. Even their stasis pods, there's helicopter engines on the ends of the stasis stasis pods. Just a lot of neat shit like that. Of course, I got a lot more behind the scenes shit that I will be getting into sprinkled throughout the film. After drifting through space in hypersleep. Hey, hypersleep. That's the one you were trying to think of when I kept saying stasis. Ah, yeah. Sorry. They're all make-believe. It doesn't fucking matter. (laughs) After drifting through space and hypersleep for 57 years, the only survivor from the first alien encounter accompanies a team of colonial Marines back to LV-426. And this time, it's war. Now, the and this time, it's war wasn't on there. That was actually added on by Cameron later. So we open with Ripley chilling in stasis. She's picked up by a disappointed salvage crew. And because they're like, oh, no, one of them's (laughs) alive. Now we don't get everything. Right. And uh, she's taken the space station to recover. And we see that she's still got Jonesy the cat. 
This this was not one of the cats that was used in the original film for anybody that thinks so. Mm-mm. Um, <laughs> cats have nine lives. They're not fucking immortal. It's been seven years. <laughs> we then see Burke, who introduces himself to Ripley, and uh, it's it, it's cool. He works for the company, but he seems to be a cool guy. He drops the news that she's been drifting for 57 years. Mm-hmm. She starts to panic, and then a chest burster pushes its way out of her chest, and she wakes up from the nightmare. Oh, I thought it was credits right there. I always stop it. Is there more movie? <laughs> <laughs> I would be having those kind of nightmares myself, but yeah. we do see that she is in treatment. She has been picked up and she's taken to a meeting where the company doesn't want to hear shit about her first alien encounter or the loss of her crew. Mm-mm. And uh, they just care about the money. And they tell her that there was absolutely no evidence to back up her claims. And it's a fairly long scene with a lot of dialogue, but it's just she's pissed and she's pleading and nobody wants to hear it. They either you're crazy or you're dumb. Go away, stupid little girl. The company knows best. And it's crazy because we know and she knows that they plan to bring the creature board and knows that it exists. And not only are they denying that, they are also trying to charge her. Yes. With blowing up company property and whatnot. Yes. Right. Like you need to just shut up and take the deal. So um, she tells them that they ought to go and check out LV426. And then Van Leeuwen, who's like the head asshole in this meeting, is like, why? We got a bunch of families down there terraforming. We've never heard them complain about anything. And and, and the way he's saying it is way more condescending because he's a fucking dick. (laughs) What was funny to me going back and watching this movie is uh, this day and age, the word terraforming is commonplace, especially to the type of movies we watch and video games we play. But when he says it, he has to like literally break it down and explain it (laughs) because As far as I know, they might have just fucking invented the word right there. Uh, you know this what I mean? Is accurate. He does have to go on a spiel. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this movie is very groundbreaking for sci-fi stuff. Oh, absolutely. So Ripley then heads back to her room, and she sulks. And then we see that some time has clearly passed because her hair is mm-hmm. suddenly much shorter. Now, I believe this was probably right around the time there's already an important cut scene between the theatrical version and the director's cut. Oh, can I jump in? Yeah, I didn't know if this was the part or after the meeting was the part, but it's somewhere around here. Yeah, and and I don't remember exactly when it pops in, but this is probably the cutscene that I'm the most angry about. And Sigourney Weaver, for that matter. So she asked about her daughter, because we did hear her mention her daughter on the first film. Yep. And Burke lets her know that her daughter was 67 or something like that last year when she passed away. Yep. And Ripley gets really upset because she promised her daughter she's going to do this like one last haul or she needed to go to this hall or whatever, but I'll be back in time for your 10th birthday. And she missed 57 years of her life and she died. And it's funny because the picture they show nowadays, you would think it was an aged up version of Sigourney. It's Weaver. not. It's her mom. Yep. It's her fucking mom, which is really cool. And that entire sequence is cut from the movie, which that was one of the things that made me realize I've only ever seen the director's cut. And Sigourney Weaver was pissed because she only took the job because she hated all the other Alien 2 scripts until she read James Cameron's and it had this mother-daughter dynamic, which persists throughout the film. It does. And Josh is going to address, I'm sure. But she liked having the precedence of why it needed to be set up and why she did what she did throughout the movie. So the, the character development got half neutered in her eyes, and I agree with her. <laughs> but it's a very brief scene. It's like a minute and a half. Why the fuck cut yeah. I don't know if they were just trying to like, oh, that's beating you over the head with it. But like, we don't know. It's never fucking addressed in the theatrical cut. Yeah, but I still meet people to this day that don't understand why she was so invested in saving Newt. I didn't until fucking this episode of the podcast. 
Oh, really? Had you ever seen the director's cut or, you, or had you only seen the theatrical cut? I'd only cut? seen the theatrical cut. And that's the point I'm trying to make is like the director's cut, you know, show, don't tell. It showed that she was really upset about fucking over her daughter. Yeah. And then now she's got a new daughter out of nowhere after being in stasis for <laughs> 57 years or whatever. And she's got to protect daughter number two because she couldn't take care of daughter number one. Boom. Ultimate plot setup right there. Somebody's a fucking idiot when they cut this in. So with that missing plot point in mind, Burke shows up <laughs> with some news. They've lost contact with the colony on LV-426. Oh, surprise, surprise. And uh, he wants her to go back on a mission with the Colonial Marines as an advisor. And she's not down. Right. She's like, fuck this. I got to get to work. Get out of my apartment. And Burke sweetens the deal and says that he can get her fully reinstated because she had a fucking pilot's license. She was she was hot shit. Right. Now she's working at a dock and she still says no. But uh, how else is she going to stop the nightmares, Jesse? Drugs. Lots of drugs <laughs> from a psychiatrist. The same way we all do. That's how you make the voices go away. But uh, she does wake up from another nightmare and she video calls Burke and she makes him promise that the only mission plan for the aliens is to destroy them. And he gives her his word. That is my one only negative plot point of Ripley. Because the Ripley we get from this point on in the franchise was not dumb enough to fucking believe. I know, right? So she takes the deal. We cut to a shot of the Sulaco, Mm. and it looks like a giant flying rifle. And if you've ever wondered why it looks like that, it's because it was designed to look like a giant fucking rifle. (laughs) Huh. And we go inside and we see a row of stasis pods. And what's really Mm -hmm. dope about this shot that I didn't even realize until researching is they did a double mirror gag to make the row look like it was way longer than it was. And there's tricks like that through this. I think it's even triple mirrors. Well, they did. Yeah, they did the double mirror. And uh, so that way it was like one of them never ending fucking tunnels. Just genius. And because they did that last, they didn't have enough money to build the pods, right? They're so fucking expensive. So it's like, we'll build four and then use a bunch of mirrors. Well, they were going to do hydraulically operated pods and like actually all work at the push of a button. And they're like, dude, we don't. This is, of course, the studio talking to Cameron and be like, you got it. There's places money's going to go and places money's not going to go. Do you really want to die on this hill? And he asked the, the props department is like, what do we do? And it's like, well, we just have guys out of frame fucking open and close the pods with a rod. Do you have any idea how much shit we're going to puppeteer in this movie? We could puppeteer some fucking pods closing. <laughs> and that's where you see the difference between James Cameron and why Ridley Scott got knighted because he got half the budget used for a fucking space jockey, <laughs> right? Because he could talk you into it. They actually use mirrors in the Nostromo to make the hallways longer. Too. Oh, nice. Like I said, I, I can never tell you enough information about Alien. <laughs> Well, now that people are waking up, it's time for us to meet the crew, and I'm going to go through a few of them here. We've got Apone mm-hmm. as the sergeant, and this dude is legit because the, I don't have his name here, but the guy who played him actually served. Yeah. <laughs> he ended up doing more work on set for firearm safety training than the armorer did because he was seeing people going around with their fingers on the trigger, no muzzle discipline, and like he was fucking pissing Cameron off because he was stopping, sh- stopping shooting. Like, we're not doing this. I'm not going to work on a set. Blanks can kill people. And I'm just sitting here watching him in the interview. And I'm like, ask Brandon Lee. (laughs) I mean, that's that's a dark fucking joke. But this guy was right. It is. And he's as legit as full metal jacket dude. Like he, (laughs) Same position, same job. Was not an actor. Was not aspiring to be an actor. They brought him in. And they used him. And that's the reason why it's so goddamn believable in the scene. Yep, because he's legit. We meet Vasquez, who's a badass chick, mm-hmm. and she's just badass in general. It doesn't matter that she's a chick. We meet Hudson, who is obviously the smartass. And we meet right. Hicks, who is basically the professional. Like, 
calm, cool, collected train, head on a swivel, nose of shit. And yeah. we meet Bishop. Give me a second on Bishop. So the crew goes on about their mission to rescue the dumbass colonists and hope to get laid. <laughs> and Ripley's not <laughs> impressed because she's down at the end of the fucking table with like the lieutenant or whatever, the higher up fucking dude on his second mission. We're going to find out and Burke and totally away from everybody else. More on that in a minute, too. So uh, <laughs> Hudson, through all their back and forth conversations, Hudson ends up telling Bishop to do the knife thing. The knife thing, if you haven't seen the movie, if maybe you've seen somebody do this in growing up like we did. Me and Josh got to where we could do it really fast. Exactly. And it was from this movie, 100%. And you put a hand down and you take a knife and you stab back and forth in between your, your fingers, back and forth as fast as you can go till you're like, I'm a badass, or you cut the shit out of yourself. Now, uh, <laughs> instead of Bishop doing the knife thing to himself... Drake grabs Hudson so Hudson can put his hand over his and stab the mm -hmm. shit out of both of them. Now, the rumor is that uh, Bill Paxton didn't know they were going to do that, that he knew the scene was going to happen, but he didn't know his hand was going to get put there. In the behind the scenes footage, they're set up for the take and more than one take. So maybe he didn't know the very first take, but the rumor that the take in the movie is his honest reaction is not true because I've seen the whole long version of it. <laughs> Just say it. So after this, somebody comments to Bishop and it's like, I thought you never missed. And we see white blood coming out of Bishop. Ripley's like, what the fuck is an android doing on this ship? Burke kind of writes it off. And Bishop says that his programming makes it impossible for him to harm a human. And he and the whole thing gets brought up about how she had a hard time yeah. with another android. And he's like, what model was it? Like, oh, no, those were always terrible. <laughs> So uh, Gorman, that's the guy. I forget the the, the hierarchy of the, the the ranks, but he's the head dude in charge above a Apone, uh, and he's a desk fucking. Jockey. He's the rookie officer. Yes. Okay, okay. He he's got a, how many jobs? We find out this is his second. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like including training. I played a video game once, and uh, I had the high score. So uh, he briefs the crew. And says that a xenomorph may be involved. And I think this is where we get great. Another bug hunt. And uh, Ripley gives a real short, short version of what they're up against. And she's, of course, not taking yeah. seriously at all. And there's one bad line in here because she says, you know, one of our crew ended up with a parasite on his face. And like, that's all she says. Like, I'm thinking, you know, are they thinking it's a bug in his beard? You know, parasite mm -hmm. is pretty vague. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting because when she says what's going on, they're like, oh, Ripley has seen an alien. And they're like, ooh, big shit. Like, they all seen aliens. That's where you get the, I hope it's not another bug hunt comment, right? Yep. Now, uh, Sigourney Weaver was actually late to make it to filming. She had another project she was on that ran over. And the rest of the Marines actually started training together without her. The original plan was for them oh, okay. all to go through mini boot camp together. But she wasn't there. And even fucking Newt was there and like tagging along and hanging out and all this shit. So, really? yeah. So, by the time she gets there, she's even more isolated from the other actors. And of course, they use that to their advantage and it fucking shows. Yeah. That's just like with Parker and the exactly. original and what Ridley Scott intended. Yeah. But by accident. So, uh, they start loading up for the mission and Ripley really wants to help. And uh, she rocks a power loader and gets some respect. Because at first they're like, what are you going to do? And she's like, I can run that. And they're like, you're licensed for that? She's like, yeah. And this is the first time you get a couple of fucking Terminator style technology shots when she's running yeah. the fucking hands on it and stuff. There's a lot of that in this fucking movie. I have to say that. Yeah. So uh, the way they did these power loaders is they're actually hung from a crane. And there's another person just behind Sigourney Weaver that's actually running everything. Okay. And she's just kind of along for the ride. This leads to a balloon fight, but we'll get to that. 
<laughs> is this like an old school servo controller thing? No. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> is it just puppetry? Pu- yes. Puppetry yes. straight up? Fucking nice. I know the final battle uses a little bit of action figures and stop motion and whatnot. <laughs> Get your very own Sigourney Weaver Barbie doll here. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where uh, we have the entry of the APC. That's an armored personnel carrier. And what this thing was, was a converted 747 tug. You know, the little tugs that pull planes around oh. airports. Yeah. Okay. They built like 50 of these fuckers. So you had the full size one. You had the full size Mach one. You had the 12th scale. You had the 24th scale. You had the fifth scale. You had the half scale. Um, They built a lot of them, <laughs> which they did a lot of that in this movie and uh, mix it up in some places that it, it worked and mix it up in some places that it didn't work. So everyone loads into the APC and the APC loads into the bug stomper and they head out. We're on express elevator to hell going down. <laughs> So during their descent, um, we get to see everyone has cameras and they've got vital uh, monitoring attached, uh, all the crew. So they land and as they disembark, you'll see lots of trash like junk, debris, burn up shit. And that's just pine wood. That's not props. They actually (laughs) had a burn pit back then at Pinewood that when they got done with stuff, they just went out back and just threw it in the pile. And like they were talking about, you could just be there for something during the day and just walk out back and a bunch of shit be on fire. So. Pension pennies. They went out there and got a bunch of derelict burn up shit and used that to dress the landing site. <laughs> and one of the sets from either this movie or the first movie is actually the set from Tim Burton's Batman, where uh, Batman fucks up the Joker and turns him into the Joker. Is actually from one of these two movies. No shit. It would have to be this one based on the year it was filmed. I think it's this one. That is yeah. nuts. I think it was this one, but the the set was still around for something in this base, and they used it for the chemical plant. Batman. Nice. So uh, they make their way into this gutted abandoned facility and they see evidence of gunfire and explosive damage. Their motion trackers, which they now have a a Gen 2 and more than one of them, (laughs) are picking up a whole bunch of nothing. They then notice the acid burns in the floor and uh, Bert gets a little excited once this is pointed out. So they call it clear and Ripley and Bert then head in to join them because they're out in the APC while, you know, the Marines come in and make sure the place is clear. And they, they don't do a very good job of sweeping the place. But anyways, we're inside. <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, flashy, but not accurate Marines. Exactly. Film. So once they're all in, they end up in like this medical bay and Ripley spots face huggers in these giant fucking vials and shit. Two of them are fucking alive. Then they get a hit on one of the scanners and they close in and nearly shoot the shit out of a frightened young girl. They try to nab her and mm-hmm. she bites the shit out of Hicks. Then uh, Ripley chases her to her little nest because she goes through the air ducts and she's got like this room where like she's collected trinkets and she's got blankets and food debris and shit. This is obviously where this little girl's been living. So they get the dirty girl back to uh, wherever they're holed up in. They call it something. I think they may just refer to it as the lab at one point. But anyways, Gorman just starts grilling the poor girl. Like, who are you? What's your name? Where are the others? Da, 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 da. Just completely militant dumbass. And uh, Ripley gets a bit more traction with a motherly touch and a hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. And uh, she finally says her name is Newt. I think she says her real name is Rebecca, but everybody calls her Newt. And uh, yeah. <laughs> And then Ripley asks about the others and and she makes it very clear that everyone's dead. Like everyone. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if this is a, a cut scene. I think it was. And it's another one of the made me angry, but you saw her and her brother and she's completely normal and talked completely different with her mom and dad. And they get a hit on like a, uh, a dig site 
that could bring them good wealth and fame. And they drive in there through a storm. And the mom and dad run into the temple, and it's basically the temple that was imagined by O'Bannon and not filmed for the original Alien. Oh. And the little brother's getting scared, and Newt's like, oh, don't worry, dad's got this. And then eventually mom opens the car door, dragging dad in with a face hugger attached to his head and calling for SOS on the uh, radio. Ah. Was that not in the theatrical? No, that's not in the theatrical. You never you never get to see the colony operating normal at all. You see the colony operating in the film. You also see on like the mothership or the main base, and like it's like a hotel, and there's kids in the area they're not supposed to, and the boss gets mad, and then you cut to this dad wanting approval to go on this this uh run or whatever to, to discover something and he's not gonna go unless he gets full credit right like it's a big thing like they're they're here to terraform and discover this new yeah. land and you see it happen and newt talks completely different and goes by the name rebecca and you see what happens to her fucking dad <laughs> and how it all started like her dad is literally patient <laughs> i'm 50 50 i can take it either way i do like the mystery of not knowing and not seeing it peaceful and just just hearing the the tale from newt and having to just imagine it yourself mm-hmm. so i'm i'm 50 50 on that one being gone well while ripley is cleaning up newt we get to see bishop getting his face hugger dissection on while uh, Hudson scans the site for more colonists. And it's the same thing again, where they used like chickens and lamb entrails and, and shit and whatever they had on hand for the for the dissection scene. And what's funny is they, they actually started giving Lance Hendrickson shit because they kept this thing refrigerated, obviously, to keep from sinking mm-hmm. up the place. And it was like his. It was like he would go get it. He would go put it back like it was his baby. <laughs> Um, Interesting. But Burke ends up explaining that all the colonists had these surgical trackers installed, and that's what they're actually scanning for. And Hudson finds one. No, wait. He finds all of them, all conveniently in one room. And uh, they're right under the atmosphere generator. So off to the atmosphere generator. And uh, once they get in, Ripley, Burke, Gorman, and Newt watch from monitors in the armor personnel carrier. And this is one of the shots where, as you see it drive over there, like in this shot, it's the full size one. The very next shot, it's 12 scale. The very next shot, it's a remote control car, like all over the place. Wouldn't know it. Yeah. And it's dope. And this is where some of the undercranking and overcranking came in because the full size one went really, really slow. The RC one went too fast. And. Cameron was smart enough to try to at least shoot it in ways that they could piece it together. And I think they did a pretty good job. Yeah. So everybody's making it down these stairs to go up under the atmosphere generator while they're watching. And uh, we get our first big reveal of the HR Geiger nest taking over the area, which it, the, the vaginal canal is, as, as people would say it was from yeah. his artwork. And this shot where you actually see, it's like looking up at the ceiling and it's like normal metal and stuff, and it slowly comes down to reveal it being taken over by all that, and you've got all the Marines in frame there, and you're looking at, at Hicks back walking away from the camera. Okay, three things. That's not Hicks, uh, or that's not Michael Bean. <laughs> it was whoever the original actor was. So they just cut it to where he was facing the camera in that shot, and they cut it to where he was turning around. But that whole transfer from the ceiling down to all the alien stuff is actually a miniature right up on the camera. And all the actors are actually in the background. And there was one of the dailies of we need one of your effect shots. We need one of your where's our money going shots. The studio wanted to see. And they showed him this. And the studio was like, 
where's all the stuff you're going to spruce it up with? You know, all you did was shoot a wall. We don't understand. And they had to explain to the executives, like what you're seeing isn't real. We didn't build all that. We didn't spend our money on that. We're saving that money for the big special effects. We did this with little pieces of styrofoam and shit. And the studio's like, we don't know how to make movies. We just know how to make money. We're going to leave you alone now. <laughs> so, um, as the team heads into these bowels, they start asking, you know, it's like, what the hell could have secreted all this resin on the walls? And uh, Ripley then asks, uh, what's the team armed with? Because uh, she's noticing that gunfire in that area could actually rupture the coolant lines she's seeing everywhere and end up causing a runaway chain reaction and right. thermonuclear blast. And uh, <laughs> you can tell she's used to working with logistics. Is <laughs> what it is, basically, right? So uh, the team is then ordered to turn in all their magazines to APON. But uh, Vasquez and Drake stay armed on the DL. And this makes much more sense with you talking about the dump stuff of them actually, you know, being together before being thrown into this situation. So uh, once they get in a little deeper, they start to discover bodies, lots of bodies, and they're all cocooned up and ready to birth. Thank God they're not turning into eggs. (laughs) They find a live one just in time to see their first chest burster. And this puppet is awesome. The first puppet was awesome, even though we made dick jokes about it. Yeah, because it was a dick. (laughs) This little scene, this little puppet had like six puppeteers, uh, 22 joints, like everything that this thing could do for that one shot before it switches to the one that they flame. Oh, wait, they didn't switch it to the one that they flame. They actually said, (laughs) I hope you get it because we're fucking torching it. Because Cameron didn't want a bunch of gore. He said the first movie was too gory and it really only had one gory scene except for milk. But like, I want this over quick, fast and in a hurry. We need to get to the actual battle. It's not about the gore. It's about the battle. So uh, anyways, they kill it with fire (laughs) and then uh, Hudson gets a hit on the monitor. I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. Where, man? I don't see shit. He's right. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. We start to see a few xenomorphs closing in in the shadows, hopping down the hallways, crawling on the walls. So as the walls continue to move, Dietrich gets plucked and she torches Frost in the process, sending him Wilhelming over a railing to his death. And she also torches the rucksack that has all the ammo and the grenades in it when they were all collected up. So we get a big bada boom. And by this point, Vasquez and Drake just say, fuck it and start opening fire and falling back because the aliens are starting to just come out of the walls, man. They're in the walls. They're in the fucking walls. (laughs) Um, Oh, Apone. He's gone now, too. He just gets plucked up just like fucking Dietrich did. Yeah. As things continue to fall apart, it's very clear that Gorman is out of his fucking element and Ripley has to take the lead. And she does so by taking the wheel of the APC and she crashes it into the entrance of the facility for a rescue, nearly killing two cameramen. Oh, shit. Really? Yes. Now, what happened was they shot this a couple of times and the brakes on the tug weren't the greatest thing. And they kept stopping really, really close to these cameras that, you know, camera was trying to get this run up shot before it crashed into the wall. And according to Gail Ann Hurd, um, that she had to step in and say, we're going to run out of luck on this, set the cameras, get the Mm -hmm. crew out of the way. And on the very next take, the cameras got fucking mowed down. So once the APC crashes through the wall, uh, what's left of the team piles in, but Drake is a little slow and a Xenomorph spots him, Mm -hmm. but Vasquez blows it away just in time. Sending acid all over Drake. So Drake's fucked anyway. Yeah. Then another xenomorph pokes its head into the APC and gets a mouthful of 12 gauge from Kyle Reese. And uh, this shot, <laughs> it's Morpheus all over again. 
<laughs> I've been drinking, but I think that was a Terminator <laughs> reference. It was. And uh, this shotgun blast sends more acid flying, which ends up hitting Hudson. And uh, Ripley hits the gas and gets everybody to a safe distance. So uh, once stopped, Ripley says they need to get to an even safer distance and event horizon the whole fucking planet. And uh, Oh, yeah. Smartest thing I heard all night. <laughs> Burke's like, whoa, whoa, that's a lot of money down there you're talking about. This installation has a substantial dollar value attached to it. They can bill me. At this point, you should realize that anytime there's a Wayland person on the ship, just fucking immediately execute them and throw them out of airlock like you're playing Among yep. Us. And then land or don't even take off. Like, <laughs> there's a, just don't go on the, just execute them while they're giving you the offer. <laughs> yeah. See, so you kill the motherfucker, you throw them out the airlock, you go to whatever location that they wanted you to go to for a rescue mission. <laughs> this is Jesse in slow-mo. So, you know, Josh is seeing air quotes and then you napalm the fucking area and you go back home. Well, they can't do that because as Burke goes on to explain, this is a very important species and they can't just exterminate it. No, kill the bugs. <laughs> Ripley points out that Hicks is now in command and uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he calls the bug stomper for an evac. He agrees with the plan because, uh, yeah. What's his nuts is unconscious right now. Gorman. Um, he ends up getting knocked out during the, during the rescue. And honestly, you should continue to pistol whip the guy anytime he tries to stir just to make sure intelligent decisions yes. are made. So, uh, we cut over to the other ship that they could bring down for a rescue and Spunkmeyer mm -hmm. on that ship notices some goo and they take off and a xenomorph pops out and fucking ices the pilot and the ship crashes. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back because it'll be dark soon and they mostly come at night. Mostly. So, outnumbered, underarmed, Hicks says it will be at least 17 days before a rescue team is sent. Fuck, I didn't even catch yeah. that. <laughs> Ripley tells Hudson, who's kind of losing it, to pull up every schematic that he can find on the facility. And as they're looking at it, they find this shaft that goes from the plant to the camp. And they come up with a plan to seal it up. Hicks then gives Ripley a Fitbit so he can track her, like the NSA. And immediately after this, she ends up having a bonding moment with Newt, and she puts her to bed and gives her the Fitbit. It's a tracker, but I'm going to call it a Fitbit through the rest of this fucking movie. So uh, Ripley then goes to regroup with Bishop, and uh, they discuss the Xenomorph's life cycle in reverse. And uh, so they go from Xenomorph, chestburster, facehugger, egg. But who's laying the eggs? And uh, Oh, no. <laughs> foreshadowing. And uh, Ripley then tells uh, Bishop to destroy all the specimens as soon as he's done. But he's like, well, Burke gave me very clear instructions to bring them back. And Ripley's like, had enough. And she actually goes mm. and confronts fucking Burke. She's getting the mother ash vibes yes. at this point, right? And all Burke wants to fucking go on and on about is the fucking money. Think about the money. It can be me and you. We'll be set for life. Yeah. Da, 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 da. She then drops the bombshell that she read where he had sent the colonists directly to the side of the alien ship. Damn, I never caught that. Yeah, this guy was a motherfucker from the word go. Ripley then makes it very clear that Burke will be reported for the 157 deaths so far. So how how mm. far would an asshole like Burke really go to protect himself? 
Now, remember that uh, all that gunfire equals thermonuclear blast talk from earlier? Yeah, yeah. Bishop then points out that they've got about four hours until the core blows. So forget the 17 days. <laughs> so Ripley then comes up with a plan to call the Sulaco and RC the second dropship down. And uh, they don't have any satellite dishes there for an uplink, but there is one at the colony. So someone's going to have to head over there, patch in, align the dish. And uh, Hudson just breaks in, losing his shit some more. Like, hey, guys, this is just dumb. We're never going to make it. I haven't wiped in 48 hours. Like, man, he's just he's lost. So they weld his ass in this little bitty pipe with a laptop and send him scurrying on his way. (laughs) So Hicks then gives Ripley a crash course on how to run a pulse rifle. And uh, Sigourney Uh Weaver said she absolutely hated doing the gun work on the movie and that it made her uncomfortable, made her feel icky. And she's very proud that she gives lots of money and time to anti-gun organizations. And uh, I'm all I'm all about squashing violence, but uh, don't blame the tool for somebody being a moron with said tool. We we kill people with a lot of cars, but I don't see them getting banned. (laughs) Just saying. There, there are a lot of stickers that say beware of owner and they show a picture of a gun. And I think that's very true. <laughs> right that means two things. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Saying. So anyways, so Gorman needs to be pistol whipped again, like Jesse was talking about, because uh, mm. he's come to mm. and uh, <laughs> Ripley then goes to check on Newt and Newt's sleeping under her bed in the lab. Why the fuck did they put? Newt's bed in the lab. I just have to stop here. In the lab where there's the big test tubes with the face huggers. That's the last place I would put a small child. Just saying. I actually have a pretty good answer. Okay. Not even James Cameron is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a gaping plot hole right there. There's no reason that she should have slept anywhere near there. There should have been barracks and housing and storage and all sorts of places <laughs> that was not the medical lab where they experimented on xenomorphs. The only thing I can say that could slightly redeem it, but you would have to blame oversight on Hicks and, and Ripley is that Burke's in charge, and he picked sleeping arrangements. Yeah, maybe. That's the only thing that would win, and it's about to make sense in about 45 <laughs> seconds. So uh, Ripley ends up getting under the bed with her and goes to sleep. While uh, Bishop has made it to uh, get the uplink going to the dropship, we then come back over to Ripley, waking up to see a busted facehugger vial. Oh, that was the noise that just woke her up. Again, why the lab? But anyways... A facehugger attacks. And, of course, they're locked in. So Ripley's smart enough to set off the sprinklers to get some fucking attention, and the attack ensues. And she's quickly pounced on by a fucking facehugger. So in this whole attack sequence, there's like four or five different puppets and so many different techniques mm-hmm. that they did. And one of my favorite ones that they did is they uh, they they called it like the pull string puppet. And so the shot of it running across the floor is literally just a puppet being pulled across the floor that has wheels on it that makes all the legs move and the tail wag, like the, the most low-tech <laughs> thing you can imagine. Like an old Tommy Kids toy, right? Yes. With the gears and the wheels. Yes. Yeah. So, But that's cut with a reverse shot that they did of one that they pulled from a, going away from the camera to make it look like it's jumping on the camera and like all the old school tricks were used in this and it's great. But while all this is happening to Ripley, weren't there two live face huggers in the vials? So the second one goes after Newt. <laughs> <laughs> and Newt takes this cart and pins its tail up against the wall. Luckily, she's smart enough to do that and it's stuck there and she's doing her screaming fucking siren of a whale that Newt does. Yeah. But speaking of carts for a second, I got to explain the tea cart lady story. 
Um, I know we're in this high action scene and I'm going to break for a behind the scenes bullshit moment. So James Cameron, this was his first time working on a, a friggin' full blown European production outfit. And he didn't know anything about tea time. And so there'd be the break in the morning and he'd be like in the middle of a shot and everybody would just set their shit down and walk away. Like he didn't tell him to stop. He didn't yell cut. And this would happen twice a fucking day. I think I erroneously put this in my notes, but I think it might have actually <laughs> been your film this happened in. He gets so mad at the poor tea cart lady this one time that he goes over there and literally just bashes her whole cart in and tells her to fucking leave. Now, damn, they interviewed like five different people telling this story. And then they go over to James Cameron and he's like, I don't remember anything about a, a confrontation with a tea cart lady. And then the, the documentary <laughs> just moves on. <laughs> you know, that shit's gotta be true, but he was oh, not, yeah. he was not happy about tea time anyways. So what's left of the team shows up. Thanks to the fire alarm going off and they shoot out the window and they save the day. Now, obviously it had to be Burke and she's saying it had to be Burke. And uh, Ripley then explains that he had a plan to actually hide fucking embryos in bodies, their bodies, because that's how he could get them through fucking customs and quarantine. Right. And just as they all go to confront him, the fucking power goes out. Third act, penultimate battle. So, uh, of course, with the power out, they immediately go to their monitors to see if there's any motion tracking they can see. And uh, they're surrounded again, but see nothing. And they're calling out the distances, Mm. 15 meters. 10 meters. It's in the meters. fucking room, man. Exactly. Ripley's like, that's inside the room. <laughs> and <laughs> this time the fuckers are crawling in the ceiling. And this is one of many shots where it's just people crawling across the floor and they turned it upside down. There's a lot of that in this movie from xenomorphs coming down, going up. That's just shot laying down. Uh, same for Ripley. Yeah. It, it's another one of those scenes that have stuck with me in my life though because they think they're safe and then bean goes and pokes his head up in the fucking grid wire <laughs> yes. and they're right there and and josh i know what you do for a living <laughs> those days are behind me sir but but yes I know. yes they're behind you you're the guy that makes the blueprints now just like i'm the guy that pays your company to come do the shit right now yes. literally there's no fucking illegal uh training of funds here some, but some, yeah you're not sam bankman freed <laughs> When my shit's broken, I still have to stick my head up in sealant hall every time. And you think a hundred percent of the time, there's a xenomorph waiting for me every time. Tell me it's, it was different for you. No, I've had that thought many a times. Hundred percent of the time, if my head's going in the sealant hall, I expect xenomorphs. Not realistically. That's just the first thing that comes to mind. It's the ancient rats that live up there that's actually going to be coming for me. But still. Still, it, it, it's funny because that's done. And name another movie where the fucking hero that's not a dumbass, he does not present himself as a dumbass in the movie, just sticks his head in the fucking hole and checks something out. I and can't. It, it, it I passes. Can't. You, you preface it you with, with something I, that negates it, so I can't. <laughs> so the ceiling tile attack ensues. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Jesse is drunk at this point. We've been recording for hours. Of course, pussy-ass Burke runs and locks himself in the med bay, trapping the others with the xenomorphs. Hudson gets yanked through the floor as the others fall back towards Burke. Sorry. Bye, Hudson. And uh, they cut the door, and as they're cutting the door open, Burke runs deeper into the fucking catacombs to lock himself in another closet, like a whiny little piece of shit corporate bitch. And uh, instead of making it into the other closet, he runs right into a xenomorph to become a mini mouth snack. And by mini mouth, I mean... <laughs> 
Those things are so fucking creepy, man. The 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 mouth inside the head every time. It looks like a cat. Not a, not a feline, but like their teeth. It, it reminds me of a cat. I'm never looking at your kittens the same way ever again. <laughs> they can't touch me. It's not allowed. So with nowhere else to go, Newt leads them into the vents and towards the landing field because that's where they're trying to get to because remember, we've got Bishop calling down the other ship for a rescue mission. So we get a little bit more screen time finally with Vasquez because she's just kind of been there throughout all this attack. I mean, she's doing shit and everything, but she's not, not, not a main plot point person. Not a main plot person, but she has massacred her fair number of xenomorphs oh, yeah. in this film. Yes, absolutely. And she gets separated in the air ducts because, you know, it's the air ducts and that's how Newt's been getting around. She ends up shooting a xenomorph and, uh, I mean, blows its fucking head off, but acid blood. So now she's losing a foot to acid. And uh, Gorman, of all people, is the one that makes it to her while Hicks is catching up to Ripley and Newt. So Ripley and Newt are way ahead. Hicks is closing in on them. Vasquez is injured and Gorman is there with her. And they're getting fucking surrounded. And Gorman finally grows some balls and he hits a grenade blowing up himself, Vasquez and a few xenomorphs. And some people have wondered what the fuck is up with this little push button grenade thing. The way the grenade launchers on the guns work is they're little, they're like little 40 millimeter, 22 millimeter, whatever it is, grenades, but you can actually take the top off and just hit the button and it's a delay timer. So they can be used as projectile grenades or as push the button, throw and hope grenades. Just for anybody who wants to be a dick about that. The the props guys actually planned this. So this blast sends Newt through this water wheel fan thing and down this chute. And it's like a slide. And she's like, ah, now she's separated from uh, Ripley and Hicks. Now she got in trouble with, uh, with James Cameron for flubbing the scene multiple times. Cause she liked oh, really? going down. Yeah. She liked going down the slide. And so <laughs> she, she'd blow the scene or blow the line and then go down the slide. And after like the third time, James Cameron pulled her aside and was like, look, you little shit. I know what you're doing. You need to get it right. Okay. He wasn't that aggressive with her, but he was, she tells the story about how it's like, he caught on to me pretty quick and he, he instructed me that I would not be doing that again. And, uh, we did it again and got the take. <laughs> <laughs> So now we've got Ripley and Hicks separated from Newt, and they're off to find her. Good thing she's got that Fitbit. And we get to where she's she's under these grates in this water, and <laughs> they're looking on the monitor. I mean, they get to her, and then she's beeping, and they're cutting through the grate. And on the other monitor, Ripley's looking at it while Hicks is cutting and shit, and there's like 8.47 million xenomorphs. <laughs> it's just red yeah, yeah. surrounding them. And... um one slowly rises up out of the water right behind Newt, and it's the best shot in the fucking flick. It's the trailer shot. It's so perfect. It's so creepy. Even though you can see the wires that are pulling its tail out of the water, I don't care. And shit, Newt's gone again. <laughs> so we're off to find Newt again, even though we just did this, but it's okay. <laughs> She's got the Fitbit. And the tracker beeps as they make their way closer and closer. And then a xenomorph pops up. As they enter an elevator. And it's actually really friggin' cool because it's like you're expecting yeah. like the 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 Foo Fighters elevator music to play. Like like it, it's like they're in an elevator, like he's pushing the button and the doors aren't closing. Like it's a it's a breath. Like you get to take a breath, and then the fucking xenomorph's like, no, I want to get on the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> they blast it, and Hicks takes some acid to the chest as he smokes it. But luckily it just gets his armor, which he takes off. They head up the elevator, and as they come off, they grab Bishop. And they fly into the core for the final rescue of Newt. 
because they got the ship now. Bishops called down the ship. That's how they got it. In case anybody's wondering, right. I didn't actually say it in my notes. But anyways, <laughs> as they're going in, there's some really good shots here. The first shot of it taken off, we're going to get to here in a second, is like the most beautiful fucking shot in the movie. But anyways, so on the on the little flight over, Ripley's like fucking rigging up a flamethrower to a pulse rifle, and she's like ready to throw down hardcore. Once they land, she heads into the Terminator finale, and it really is like in, <laughs> in the first Terminator where there's the machinery going and fucking Sarah Connor's crawling, and it, like it really does remind me of that shit with some of the framing. And uh, the rangefinder leads her straight into the Fitbit Sans Newt. Fuck. We then see partially cocoon Newt about to have an egg for breakfast. Oh, that's my kitchen joke. I said that earlier. So Newt's wailing, thankfully, leads Ripley straight to her. She blasts mm-hmm. the face hugger, and a xenomorph pops up. She blasts it to him. Like, this is this is the thing. Like, they pop up, she blasts them. Like, Rip, Ripley's badass now. It's not like she wasn't badass before, but now she's, like, like motherly badass. So she cuts Newt free, and with the Newt stand-in doll in hand, she goes running straight into the queen's lair. And I'm not kidding. As soon as she picks up Newt, if you don't see Newt's face through all this running, it's a doll. <laughs> Okay, okay. And uh, once in the queen's lair, we see the queen just chilling, shitting out some eggs. And I have to sit here for a second because the work on this queen and everything that went into it is fucking amazing. If you go back Mm -hmm. and watch the trash bag test footage, (laughs) is what they call it, where they literally were building the rig with trash bags to at least have something black on it to just try to figure out how it would work. (laughs) And what they ended up with was when it's moving – a crane holding the puppet between 16 and 22 puppeteers and two actors pinned in back to back Mm -hmm. in the queen's chest to operate her arms. It's badass. Yeah. Just all kinds of badass. Anyways. So Ripley shows the queen what she could do to all the eggs that are around them right now with the flamethrower and the queen like nods (laughs) in either direction and you see the xenomorphs kind of stand down and Ripley slowly backs away and then torches the fucking eggs anyway like fuck you bitch (laughs) and uh, she expends most of her ammo on the remaining xenomorphs because of course they go to fucking charge at her and then she just starts lobbing grenades into the fucking queen's ovipositor and blows it to shit ovipositor Yeah, there's that word again. I, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> so for anyone who's wondering in the insect kingdom. I'm waving my hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> the egg laying part of the insect is known as the ovipositor. Think of like ah. ovum. Yeah, see, there you go. Okay. So uh, Ripley and the Newt doll now make a break for Bishop. While the queen rips herself free from her ovipositor and gives chase. And as they get out to where the ship was, what the fuck? Bishop has fucking abandoned them. Those goddamn androids. Goddamn synths. <laughs> oh. The facility crumbles around them as the queen enters via elevator. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so bad. I, I just want to point out Ripley's like, oh, hits the button. Elevator's not working. Let me hit it about three more times. Hey, there's a second elevator. Let's hit that button. Oh, no, let's hit it two more times. And then she rides the elevator up and the other one's prepped for the xenomorph that probably didn't know how the fucking elevator works. Ride it up. Exactly. And uh, with the, the queen walking out onto the little deck, it's fucking over. Mm. Oh, there's Bishop in the ship overhead. Yep. They hop on and they make their escape and it looks awesome. Like at the first shot of it tilting down and going and the explosions and shit. Like I buy it. That shit really Mm -hmm. happened. Even though it didn't, I buy it. 
to this day. I buy it. Anyways, <laughs> um, but even more awesome is the score right here. Now, I'm going to go on a long diatribe. Bear with me. So if you pay attention, like this whole third act, there's been like little pieces that have been building up to this final fucking crescendo of a music piece. And it makes it that much more satisfying when you get it here with the ship taking off. The composer, James Horner, pulled this shit off under extreme pressure from James Cameron. Because James Cameron didn't deliver the final cut of the film until a few days before the film's release. Fuck. James Horner didn't even have time to get the sheet music printed, is what he was telling James Cameron. He's like, dude, even if I had it, we don't have time to print this shit. Horner's like, this can't be done. Like... I'm sorry. And they turned around to him and said, well, then we'll find someone who can do it. And Horner said, great. I can't wait to meet him. And so they backed off. <laughs> That's what you do right there. They didn't extend the time <laughs> though. And that ending score, um, Horner actually wrote in a 36 hour cram session Damn. and got it written out, got it fucking tracked, got it done. And it's going to get reused here in a second, but it's just, like I said, I had a similar story to what went down in the first one, but it was right. And, and it's the same thing. They ended up working together again later, I believe on Titanic. <laughs> like the director didn't know what he's asking for to ask properly. <laughs> exactly. For the next 45 seconds, it says scene missing. What fucking music do you want there? <laughs> so as the place goes nuclear, they dock at the Sulaco. Credits. Fuck no, this is aliens. Yep. <laughs> Bishop apologizes for scaring him, but he said the platform just seemed to be too unstable. And holy shit, the queen's tail just blew through his chest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she picks him up and she rips him in half, tossing his remains. Now, a few things about this. The initial stab through the chest is so low tech. It's so beautiful. That whole stinger is just latex, and they literally just okay. stuff, stuffed it in his shirt, tied a piece of monofilament to it, and pulled it out. That's that's literally what they did. Now, when it cuts to okay. the next shot of him being lifted in the air, that's a dummy with looks a, just like Lance Hendrickson, and, uh, and 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 he's in the rig and everything. And they actually built the body that it wouldn't fall apart; that it had to be rotated so many degrees before it could rip into two pieces. That's why the queen turns just a little bit and then rips. Okay. But it all looks great. Now, what's great about this is the next shot of the upper half of his torso bouncing across the ground. James Cameron made them film that like 30 times. I was curious how they did this part. Thank you. They didn't like how the doll half was landing. And finally, Lance okay. had to just walk up to him and be like, you know, Jim, as long as it's face up, I can just put my body in, in that same spot. You realize that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that's what it looked like to me okay that makes sense okay. <laughs> so that's the, they're like oh okay cool we'll just use one of the ones we already got so they just used a dummy throw and then composited him in the floor well they just did a table rig with his body through the table and the yeah, the, yeah. the gore on top yeah now okay, what's okay. funny is when he first gets stabbed and he starts spitting out all the milk that was a uh, rancid milk and yogurt because they were doing so many takes that they, I don't know why they mixed yogurt with it, I guess for consistency. Yeah, thickness. They'd prep everything and it would be sitting there. And then the, then Cameron would have to argue with all the cameramen. James Cameron would then have to argue with all the lighting guys. And then it'd be fucking tea time. And so when they'd get around to actually do the shot, they'd be like, hey, Lance, I need you to take this, this milk that's been sitting in this, you know. 80 degree studio for the past three hours and put it in your mouth. He was actually going home with diarrhea and vomiting, like all mm. kinds of sick <laughs> from having to put this rancid shit in him. 
So Newt hides in the floor while Ripley hops in a power loader to throw down fucking mech style. Get away from her, you bitch! The prop work here is fucking unbelievably beautiful, even if some of it features the Ripley Barbie doll. Is it literally a Barbie? It, it's the size of a Barbie, that's for damn sure. Okay. They had one scale model of the power loader for this ending scene for to be the one that actually makes the fall and gets jettisoned and shit. And uh, it's cut between like four different rigs and the close-ups and everything, and it's 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 still awesome. Now, yeah. I, I do have to explain something earlier. I said uh, the balloon gag. So uh, I explained earlier that in the full-size rig, when Sigourney Weaver's in it, piloting it, she's just along for the ride. And there's a guy right behind her with, like, his crotch up against her butt actually moving the rig. She's there to act. He's there to move it. And then there's a crane operator that's actually moving it around. So they decided for this last scene to actually put one of the, like, latex inflatable balloons in her seat in the power loader that they could have operated off camera and blow it up. So the okay. whole time they're shooting this, they're blowing this thing up, making Sigourney Weaver think that dude piling it was poking her in the butt with his boner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. And multiple people admitted to this, including Sigourney Weaver herself, that this really did happen when they were shooting that scene. I think that's absolutely hilarious. Anyway, so Ripley, of course, smacks the queen around a bit with her Terminator fucking power loader arms. And, uh, Opens the airlock, because that's her move. <laughs> yeah. And they both tumble through the first door. Ripley climbs out of the power loader, and she's going up the, the fucking ladder to, to get up to get to the other door so she can release the other door. We explained how airlocks work recently in fucking Event Horizon. Anyways, <laughs> so she hits the button, opening the outer door, dispatching the queen, and nearly losing Newt in the process. But what's left of Bishop grabs her. That mm -hmm. badass mm -hmm. theme music hits again, which is what they used in the trailer and like several other people's trailers. As Ripley closes the door, and then Newt grabs Ripley, and she calls her fucking mommy. And Bishop approves. Not bad for a human. So uh, we've got the orphan, the new mommy, the presumably new daddy, and their android assistant, and Ripley's bush, which I don't know why we needed that there. Uh, they go into stasis. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, she's doing the whole strip down thing again to go into stasis. And I don't, it bothers me that do we need to get half naked to go into stasis that that's 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 the whole qualm i have right here it is odd it's not a stupid sticking point the cast and the crew got pissed about it when they were supposed to be nude oh and okay. they changed it to underwear <laughs> so this is the stripped down version honestly it's sad that not a lot changed in uh seven years it would have made more sense you know like if they want to do something weird to make it look uh futuristic or whatnot just stick them in body suits or something yeah, right true but regardless they all go into stasis for their trip home and that's the end of Aliens. And this family has to live happily ever after, after this, right? Or at least live till the next battle. Mm-mm. I don't even <laughs> give them that. <laughs> but you guys are not going to find out about that from us right now. It's going to be later <laughs> when that happens. This franchise, these first two films, are, are game-breaking. Because we get Ridley Scott and James Cameron really coming into their own. Yep. Right off the gate. And they both did groundbreaking things. I mean... Ridley Scott showed us how isolation could cause horror in its own right. And James Cameron, right on the uh, the tailcoats of Terminator, showed you how you could mix horror with action. If there's enough scary monsters coming at you, it doesn't matter how many soldiers are there, it's still fucking terrifying, right? Exactly. 
And that was this one was supposed to be a a tale of terror. Yeah. And he did it. <laughs> and in both <laughs> these films, I feel like evolved the horror genre a bit and opened up the doors of what you could do with slashers and monsters and and even your alien attacking Earth Ed Wood style, right? Like it, like it took all of that and it showed you what you could do in isolation with a small crew getting attacked by one monster and what happens if your whole planet's invaded. But they're yep. smart enough to not make Earth get invaded so they could do more sequels. You always got to have the sequel. Yeah, and they're still going strong today. The movies, the yep. video games, all of it. And it's interesting because one of Josh and I's favorite directors, which he can definitely miss. Everybody can hit or miss. But Fidi Alvarez is actually in charge of making the next solo alien film. And he says he's going to start filming in Brazil early 23. So fuck. Yeah, I'm totally okay with this. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a miss, but he did not write and direct it himself. So no, he was only a producer on that. Evil Dead is one of the greatest remakes I've ever seen. And he wrote and directed that one. So I do have to harken back to an old joke of ours. Um, I didn't get to see these movies that much as a kid because Alien and Aliens were lost on a Jesus tape. No bullshit. Yeah. So in my adult life, I've probably watched the first two, three times. I know I saw them really? both. Yeah. I know I saw them both in, in my formative years, but not enough to like totally grasp and remember everything. So coming back to these for this episode was actually really fun because I got to see how much shit I'm uh, either didn't remember or misremembered. That's awesome, man. That it's always fun when that happens. But like you said, they're two, they're two groundbreaking films for different reasons, um, from story to setting to special effects to having a strong female lead. Even though people yeah. think that there's not strong female leads in horror movies because they're close-minded morons. Yeah, and it didn't play to any fucking pandering card or anything right. like that. And these movies led to a part three that is a logical next step. It's not incorrect. It could have happened that way. There's some bad decisions made. We hope to tell you all about the bad decisions, which led to another movie with a lot of bad decisions made by uh, somebody that we think is a pretty good filmmaker. All the bad decisions. <laughs> all the bad decisions. But those are not happening on this day. So you guys have to wait for another day on those. Yep. Well, that's it for season four of the Slice by Slice podcast. So you guys are going to have to tune in for the next season where we plan to have more than eight episodes. Promises, promises. But as usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.